Yo, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back. It is a brand new episode of Bets and Banter. And today on the show, we're talking, of course, about UFC Austin. Benil Dariush is taking on Armand Sarukian. Only one man can continue their advance towards that lightweight title. And Benil Dariush, last time out, suffered that setback. Charles Oliveira put him down one rung on the ladder. So now he's trying to get that get back. But in his way, a very difficult challenge, Armand Sarukian. He's proven to be one of the most difficult challenges for all these lightweights in the division. And last time out, he dealt with some adversity, you know, a fight he didn't need to take. He went out there, took it anyway, and still got the job done. So now Armand's taking that step up in competition. Who's going to get it done? We're going to find out on the show today. And you know we can't do it alone. We got to bring one of the very best in the business for bets and banter. He's back once again. Just win, baby. We didn't have UFC last week. We got it again. Brother, welcome back. Yo, bro. Yeah, happy to be back. Tired of these uh, UFC breaks. Um, looking forward to this card. I'm going to Amsterdam in January, so need to make some money, man, for the uh, the hose and the weed. I absolutely love it. And let's see if we can get it paid for with this fight card, because we got a lot of fights. We got a lot of opportunities. I found, you know, Rich, that because we're out of the apex, because we're back in front of a live crowd, look at the top four fights on this card. Are they not exponentially better than what you expect from a typical apex offering? I think they are. And then you look Misha Tate on the prelims, for example, it's just goes to show a little bit more depth, a little bit more thoughtfulness and preparation, I feel like, for this fight card. So with that being said, you guys that are regulars, you know how we work on Bets and Banter. We start at the bottom of the card, and we work our way on up to the top. So without further ado, let's start with the first matchup of the night, a women's uh, flyweight matchup. We've got Jamie Lynn Horth dropping down from her uh, previous division, right? Last time out, we saw her compete at 135, short notice debut against Haley Cowan. I was very confident in her in that spot, and she was able to get the job done, but a little bit more greasy than I was expecting. Now, on the other side, Veronica Hardy, she comes back, long layoff. You know, she's got a new uh, partner, Dan Hardy, obviously has a great uh, lineage in the UFC, fought for titles, uh, you know, got to a, a very high level. So Dan Hardy is a guy that's kind of been backing her career. And you see that in the background, she's gotten much better, right? She came out against Juliana Miller, massive underdog in that spot. And Rich, I sent you a, a screen grab that I took, right? As I was watching the fight, I was like, how was this girl a minus 380 favorite? She just looked like she was scared to be there, you know, and she had so little professional experience. So hindsight being 2020, that was a very winnable fight for a girl who's always been scrappy. You know, her, her scrappiness has never been the problem. It's been the technique. It's been the fact that she's just been getting bullied by bigger, stronger girls. She's not the best athlete in the world, but she has a traditional martial arts background. And you know what's funny, Rich, is if you go back to her Ashley Evans Smith fight, you know who was waxing poetic about her uh, Taekwondo and her stand-up on the broadcast? None other than Dan Hardy himself. So Dan's been impressed with her for a long time. He made that abundantly clear on commentary. And I think that when you see how um, you know she, she moves on the feet, it makes some sense, right? A lot of women... Uh, can get a little bit static in their striking exchanges. We often talk about, it's like, uh, you know, I go, you go, just return fire, like standing in front of each other, both of us throw. So then it's about who has more power, who's a little bit bigger, who can keep up the cardio, who has more volume. And in a fight like this, I think that Jamie Lynn Horth is a big, strong girl for this division. We talk about the last time out, Haley Cowan has no clear discernible fighting skills that I could see. Uh, but she's very, very strong physically. And that's a lot for most women to deal with. You know, she's a good athlete and she can keep pushing. She can throw some kicks. She can mix it up a little bit. But I knew that Haley Cowan just didn't have the same skills that Jamie Lynn Horth did. So I didn't mind that she was up a weight class there. 
But you did see in that fight, you know, maybe the cardio wasn't fully there. Maybe some of the takedown defense wasn't what you wanted to see. But I did think that Jamie Lynn Horth responded well in that third round. You know, close second round probably would give that uh, to her opponent. And it ended up being a unanimous 29-28. So all of the judges agreed round two goes uh, to Cowan. But then in round three, she responds well. She gets the win in that round despite getting taken down late. I thought it was very clear that she won that round uh, with the better work on the feet. So Jamie Lynn Horth. Does she have the most volume? Is she the most, uh, you know, standout fighter you've ever seen? No, but I do think she's got a better pedigree. I think she's a little bit stronger. I will say, though, Veronica Hardy showed last time out she's got excellent hips. You know, sometimes she can be very difficult for women to take down. She can scramble and find her way on top. But I just think some of the technical jujitsu, some of the scrambles, I mean, even against Juliana Miller, let's not forget, she was in several dicey positions. Uh, one of the rounds ended with her locked in a Kimura that I thought could have been trouble, you know, if, if there's more time in the round. And that's against somebody who's very physically weak. You know, that was the biggest problem for Miller in that fight. She was just getting bodied, thrown around, had nothing to offer in terms of physical resistance. So am I bullish on going to lay minus 180 on Horth? No, I'm not. But am I gutted that I missed the minus 105 as I was breaking it down on first look and kind of saying like, I felt like this fight was put together to kind of test if Hardy really has it at this level. Cause I do think Horth is a girl with no name, no acclaim that's really tough and difficult to deal with 33 years of age. Like if you beat her, you get nothing, but if you don't beat her, it's like, yeah, I mean, that's kind of expected. She's a really difficult girl for a lot of people to deal with. So uh, how do you feel about this one, Rich? Go ahead. Yeah. I don't think uh, anyone should be betting on it to be honest. So don't be too mad that you missed that money on Horth. Um, yeah, I guess Hoff is the side if you had to pick somebody. Um, she, you know, she's got the metrics. She's a big girl. She's got a three-inch uh, height and reach advantage. She's got a BJJ brain belt, so that should negate whatever um, Hardy's going to bring to the table in terms of subs off her back, you know, arm bars or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I just think it's going to be typical women's MMA. It's going to be a decision to one of them. I don't think there's any finishing upside, to be honest. If there's any finish in this fight, it'll probably be Hardy by some opportunistic submission. Uh, like she hit on um, Polly uh, Biana. But yeah, um, the fights don't tell us much, man. Uh, you was just talking about Horf against the uh, Karen girl. Karen's trash, man. She's a mental midget. Um, and then on the other side, we seen Hardy in a comeback against another mental midget in Miller. Um, she broke her in rank one, man, when she couldn't get her submission game going. So the two fights that both girls had recently don't tell us much. Um, I don't think this fight's going to tell us much either. It's going to be a decision to one of them. I'd lean off, but at the prices, just stay away, man. Just it's the opener. Just just stay away. That's my advice. I mean, the the one thing that I'll consider here is when you look at her record. Obviously, you know she has some time away uh, on the Veronica Hardy side, so you got to give that um, you know some some credence. She's obviously gotten better over time. We acknowledge that off the break. Um, but losing to Bea Malecki, I don't think that would ever happen to Jamie Lynn Horth, period. I just think she would absolutely dominate Bea Malecki. So, uh, you know, similarly, Pollyanna Vienna, I bet, um, you know, what's her name? Baby Shark against Vienna. And the whole reason being, Baby Shark, bricked up, small, low center of gravity. Pollyanna Vienna, big, long, tall noodle, right? Just seems like the kind of girl, um, you know, that Veronica Hardy, who has good hips and is kind of strong, could deal with. But I feel like, that, that has a ceiling for her, which is when she meets other big, strong girls. And last time out, Juliana Miller, 
didn't have that kind of strength, didn't have that kind of ability to push back. That's what I see as the biggest difference here. And oftentimes in WMMA, I find that the biggest intangible is just size and strength. And I do think that last time out, you know, if Horth was ever going to get out strength, it would be up a weight class. It would be against this girl who is big and physical. It's like her number one attribute. She was able to move her around oftentimes in the clinch. And I felt like she was very strategic. Like, okay, I have this much cardio to give. So in some spots, I'm going to be calm here. Just lean against the fence. Take one knee to the body at a time um, in terms of offense. But I feel like in this fight, she said six weeks. I've done nothing but wake up, train, and go back to bed. Like, she's basically just soldier lifestyle. And I kind of like that about Jamie Lynn Horth. I feel like she's all in on her fight career right now. So for me, um, these are two women that are both highly motivated, but I think the better skills and the better hardware is on the Horth side. So again, not, not really endorsing this current price, but I'm hopeful that people will buy back on the Hardy side comes back down to a more reasonable number uh, because we've seen a tug of war on this line already. We've seen obviously some big money came in earlier on in the week because it dropped it down to a pick em price from a minus 175. However, it's gone back the other way. And I think Horth is going to ride for Canada this weekend. So Squamish stand up. Uh, I think that Jamie Lynn Horth is getting another one. Uh, the undefeated fighter rides again, but should be a hell of a scrap. So with that being said, let's move to this next fight, Rich, where we've got a welterweight bout between Wellington Terman and Jared Gooden. And I'd love to kick it off to you first, brother. Uh, yeah, so, so to make it simple, I think Terman wins the fight. Um, I think it's likely ITD. Uh, I'm not sure which it'll be, KO or submission. But when I watched uh, Gooden, I had to remind myself on him. I couldn't remember most of his fights, man. But his last fight, his um, his striking defense was disgusting, to be honest. Like, the way he kept his hands down and he was just moving out of range with his hands by his hips. Um, he's just waiting to be KO'd by somebody. And um, that somebody doesn't have to be, you know, a, a fighter with good boxing, with good skills. Anyone could just clip him and put him out, to be honest. Um, I think Terman's a half-decent fighter. Um, he's got good cardio, decent jiu-jitsu. Um, I think 170 is a good home for him. Training with Glover, I think that's good for him. It's always good to have someone like that in your corner. Um, but yeah, it's more of a, a Gooden fade, man. I think Gooden is probably KO or bust in this situation. Um, I don't like Gooden off his back. He's pretty flat. doesn't try to get up at all, to be honest. So that's the round over if Terman can get it there. I think Terman will pressure him, put him against the fence, um, try for his takedowns, probably won't succeed in round one. But then round two or three, um, I think the takedowns are come, man, and I think that's when uh, Gooden will find himself in trouble. I don't think he'll be able to um, hold Terman off and uh, he'll get a finish, man. Um, the one thing I'll say about it is I like the KO price over the submission. Uh, when I looked at it, it was plus 700 when it opened. I'm not sure what it is now. But I just think Gooden's a stubborn bastard, man. I don't think he's the type to give up the rear naked or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I think it would be a grand and pain. So, yeah, I like the TKO price on, on Terman, man. You know, it's funny you say that, Rich, because one of the things that stood out to me, um, I, I look into a lot of markets that I feel like are neglected, you know, or just like not as considered by the average better, just because I'm always trying to find an edge, right? And theoretically, it's easier to find an edge when you're dealing with a market that a lot of people don't bet into relative to, you know, the money lines, the totals, you're going to get the most sophisticated betters in the world because that is the line that people have the most access to, right? So just from a theoretical standpoint, the biggest margin or the biggest edge you could find might be on some smaller market. So I looked at the fight ends by market for this fight and the fight ends by KO market. 
I think is insane. You know, it's just, it's like three to one. Um, so I think I'm going to have to have that. Oh, here. that's good. And, and just like when you look at what is Jared Gooden's path to winning this fight? You know, I think Wellington Terman has decent skills. And what has always held him back? A laughably poor chin at times. You know, just like when he got boinked out by the one shot, um, I was laughing with VB. It was like Hector Sandoval. You know, the the fight where it's like um, with Matt Schnell, where it's literally like a ground and pound shot, like one shot to the chin and the guy just dies, right? And that was kind of what happened with him against uh, Bruno Silva. And Bruno Silva is a prolific knockout artist, make no mistake. But like, we've just seen Andrew Sanchez, not a prolific knockout artist, right? Also was able to, t- uh, you know, take him out. So Termon got here young. There's a lot of excuses you can make for him as well. You know, I think he had some of that, Back knee, he got on maybe some some supplemental, uh, you know, products that that helped him, uh, you know, advance his professional uh, ambitions. And now I feel like this is a guy that maybe could start to put something together. Jared Gooden's a guy that really hasn't broken out. But again, if he wins this fight, how does he win? I feel like he wins it by knockout. To your point, Rich, when you're seeing 10 to 1 in a fight that's contested in the welterweight division for a man to win by knockout, I almost just take that on instinct. And again, you'll be wrong sometimes, but... Um, how wrong could you be? I remember people told me I was insane when I took it uh, for Brian Battle against Gabe Green. They're like, Gabe Green, what, what are you talking about? He just took 100 significant strikes in his last fight. And then what was it, a 12-second fight? So it's just like in, in any fight, when you're talking about two guys slinging leather in the middle of the octagon, is Jared Gooden one to shy away from that? Absolutely not. So I think that these are bets that you take knowing I'm not going to win all of them, but I'm going in with a 9% expected chance and I think that it's much more likely that it's 20%. It's like, I'm going to take that every time and willing to throw out half of them. So um, for me, I, I think that it's a long-term EV spot there as well. Uh, so I agree with you fully. And for me, I don't believe in Wellington Turman that much. So would I heavily invest in his side? No, I would not. Because I do think his chin is a, a accident waiting to happen. But who has more plus-level skills to win the fight over the course of 15 minutes? And positionally, if you have a chance to get a submission – you have a chance to win by TKO. We always talk about that on the show. So I think that's a great way to look at this fight, uh, to sweat two plus money angles. With that being yeah. said, oh no, either please. by KO, um, that's a good number. What was you saying? Plus 300. I believe that is what I saw. So I'm uh, trying to load it up here uh, as as we record. Um, yeah. But I think that it's definitely a, a playable number. So there's a... I'll make a, a note of that. That's a, that's a good number. I like, the, I like that angle, man. Either KO. Yep. And with that being said, guys, let's move to the next fight here where we are seeing Ihor Poteria take on Hadolfo Bellato. And I really don't have the strongest thoughts on this fight. You know, what I do feel is minus 400, pretty tough to justify long term at light heavyweight unless you're going out there, getting takedowns, staying on top and limiting exchanges just because we just talked about at welterweight how volatile it could be. Now we're talking about people that are 200 uh, you know, plus pounds. It's like the inherent volatility there is something that you really can't ignore. Um, so when I'm looking at a fight like this, I'm saying to myself, Ihor Poteria, he kind of invites that volatility. He goes out there, swings leather in the middle. He's been knocked out several times. So we know that his chin's a vulnerability. Um, and on top of that, you know, I don't know that his cardio can hold up for a full 15 minutes. He kind of holds himself, uh, you know, to a lot of strikes quickly. And if he doesn't get you out of there, he seems like he checks out a little bit mentally. So for me, this just seems like a fight that's probably destined to end inside the distance. But we've seen Bellato drop somebody in Vitor Petrino, who then gets back up and finishes him. So it's not like he has, um, you know, 
this surefire power. If he hurts you, the fight's over. You know, even Murtaz Tala, when he was kind of on the ropes, was able to hang on for a little bit, extend the fight. And, you know, I had Bellato there as a pick, but it was, it turned into a, a real sweat, even as he was unloading on him. He's just like, uh, you know, keeping his chin out in the air and inviting a lot of risk, I felt. So um, for me, Bellato has more passive victory, uh, probably more long term upside. Don't think the UFC cares about Ihor Poteria, but it's just a 205 pound fight, minus 400. I, I don't know if I believe in Bellato that much. Rich, how do you feel? Yeah, as you were saying that earlier when I did my show, I said that Bellato sub was unplayable because it was plus 175. Um, but now it's plus 300 for whatever reason uh, on Bet Online. So, um, yeah, no idea why that is, but that's that's a bet for me. I like that number. Um, so, yeah, Bellato sub plus 300. Um, let me just get my notes. Uh, yeah, Pretoria, I can't remember which fight it was. I should have wrote it down, but he gives his back up, man. Um, when he's getting back to his feet, um, I don't think he's very um, seasoned in BJJ. I imagine he's a blue belt, something like that. Uh, and Bellato, I've seen him, man. He cage pushes. Um, you know, he's not all about the hands. We've seen in his Dana White Contender Series fight, you know, he finished that bum guy against the cage. Um, but I think in this one, with the path of least resistance being the grappling against Pretoria, I can see him implementing that. Um, he's working with Glover, too. So again, he's going to have someone um, good in his corner, giving him good advice. Um, so yeah, plus 300 sub is uh, very nice on the Bellato side. Um, I think most people won't be looking at it. I think I imagine that's why the price is uh, blown out to 300. So um, yeah, I'm probably going to bet it, man. Um, Bellato sub, 300. Fair play. And I'm trying to pull up my notepad because I did put together a list of props that it kind of caught my eye. And uh, Bellato, uh sub was exactly what I had uh, wrote down as well on the American domestic markets over three to one, um, you know, three and a half to one in some places I saw. And then Bellato late round props. You know, when I look at Bellato, the one thing that stood out to me is he was kind of patient against Taha last time. And I said it kind of invited some risk. I felt like I was sweating it more than I needed to. I felt like he could have taken him out in the first round. Right. But he also just showed that he's not going to go out there and force it. If you're going to get tired, if you're going to slow down, he'll chip away, he'll throw to the body, he'll pick his shots, he'll land a, a bunch of volume. He won't try and load up for one shot that'll kill you. Uh, it didn't seem like that at least. So for me, I also thought there might be some value on Bellato round two, plus 475, round three, 20 to one. A couple of things that stood out to me from a long uh, shot perspective. So if y'all are, are uh, Lambo betters, if you will, then uh, that's something that at least caught my eye uh, for this fight. But with that being said, we can move along to the next one here where we've got a featherweight contest featuring Steve Garcia and uh, the Mean Machine. Great nickname. I had to I had to go back and get that one. And then on the other side, we got Mel Costa, uh, a very sound uh, fighter from what we've seen, you know, based on these last couple performances, you know, looked a little bit sketchy against Thiago Moises, kind of slowed down there, but short notice debut. He's shown a lot more in his subsequent bouts, um, you know, not finishing Austin Lingo. Looks a little bit uh, questionable to me in hindsight, but in either case, we are seeing some growth from him, um, and we saw a well-rounded approach. So, Rich, how do you feel about this fight? We'll kick it off with you, brother. Yeah, in short, I think Costa wins the uh, decision in this one, um, and it's a shame, really. I do like him, um, Garcia. He's obviously a violent guy, high volume, uh, finishes fights, everything you like to see. But he's a bit predictable, man, with that left hand, and I think. Um, 
Costa's just going to pick him apart from the outside. They're in the bigger cage. Um, they're not at the apex. Uh, and I think his kicking game and his cardio is just going to be too much. I don't think Garcia is going to be able to find him. Um, I think he's going to get frustrated. Um, Garcia being a southpaw, that's going to open up uh, um, some kicks um, that he's not used to um, from Costa. And... Um, yeah, as simple as that, man. I think it's going to be a decision. I just don't think he's going to be able to find him, Garcia. Um, I don't think there's going to be any grappling. If there is, I think it's going to be from the Garcia side. I think he's going to get frustrated and try and take Costa down, which would be a mistake. Um, before, because I think um, Garcia, um, you know, he's not taking down Charlie Osteveros anymore. You know, Costa is serviceable and he's got better um, jiu-jitsu, so... One, I don't think Garcia can take him down if he tries. And then if he does, I think he'll probably get reversed and choked out. So uh, it will be a mistake. So, yeah, I like uh, Costa quite a bit on this one. Um, Pepe was saying when I did the podcast with him that the Brazilians uh, on this card have got favourable matchups. And um, I think he's right, man. And I think this is another one with Costa uh, against Garcia. I am going to tend to agree with you uh... Uh, in some regards, but I'm going to disagree with you in other regards, right? And the yeah. only thing I'll say is just like, I think Steve Garcia is capable of finishing people that are way better than him at MMA, but I also think he's capable of getting finished by anybody. Um, and I know that he's a really tough guy. I know that he wants to be out there. I know that he's a born fighter. All these things are true. But when Charlie Ontiveros is putting you on ice skates in the first 30 seconds, I had a lot of money on Steve Garcia that night, Rich. And I, granted, he was a big favorite, and I don't bet big favorites a lot. But I was like, Charlie Ontiveros is role-playing here. I did the same thing with Kevin Holland. I bet so much money on Kevin Holland, and then Kevin Holland picks him up, slams him, and the fight is literally over, right? Kevin handled business accordingly. Steve is on ice skates, like dancing around and just tackles him and beats him up because Charlie Ontiveros doesn't know anything on the ground. So he just passes guard and, and easily beat him. But when you look at that fight and then you look at the, the knockout losses that like the comical knockout loss against, um, what's his name? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. China. Uh, Mahashate. Mahashate. So when Mahashate face planted him, I was like, my, my Lord, um, Steve Garcia, Definitely a guy that is capable of going out there and getting wins. But I think that in particular, you look at a guy like Costa and the build, he's got the, uh, you know, they, they appear to be the same size on paper, right? Steve Garcia used to fight down at bantamweight. I think that couldn't have been good for his long-term health or his chin either. He's a pretty big guy. Um, you know, if you're Mel Costa size, right. Uh, but when you look also, I just feel like Steve Garcia kickers can give him real problems. You know, like, I just don't think he sees kicks very well. I think he wants to be in punching range, but even in punching range, he kind of keeps his chin up. So he takes clean shots on the chin, squares up a little bit to throw his bomb. So I feel like when you look at that, I could see a front kick to the face, taking him out. I could see just like Mel Costa getting off on one of those spinning shots. Um, but if he's not landing that, I do grant, it's probably going to come down to a submission type finish. I just feel like Costa is going to find him eventually in this fight. Um, in terms of he's either going to grab a hold of him and be too much for him on the mat, um, which I do see happening. Like I can see a standing back take finish here, um, you know, where I just think Mel Costa could have that good reaction. Maybe he learned something from Tiago Moises. Um, but I do think he's got the fishpole arms that my guy Moise is always looking for. Um, so I just feel like he's a little bit more dangerous in these positions all around. And this isn't Charlie Ontiveros anymore. You can't just bail yourself out if you get hurt. Um, so I, I think this is a much harder fight for Steve and beating Chase Hooper, you know, that's a great win. You know, I like, I like that win for him, but 
Chase is now up at 155 doing his own thing, right? Uh, looking a lot better, a lot healthier, and saying that he feels a ton better. But also, you know, Garcia drops him three, four times in that fight. He's a big underdog. Now he's, you know, plus 200 or whatever against a guy who I think would be heavily favored against Chase as well. You know, so it's just like, I, I think that um, the Lions don't really know what to do with a guy like Steve Garcia. And uh, this is an example for me. I think he could potentially be a bigger underdog here. Um, a guy who's um, a guy who's never been KO'd either, Costa. So um, that's important to know, I think. Yeah, it, especially for all the fights he's had. You know, <laughs> 26 yeah. professional fights, a lot more than, than Steve. But in any case, and I, it's a, a model, a model bet as well. Um, younger fighter, more experienced. If he was an underdog, I'd have to click it. Um, obviously, he's a big favorite here. So the the odds makers kind of seeing uh, the same thing that I'm seeing here, which is just a lot of experience for Costa, well-rounded approach, um, and dangerous in all positions. So I think he's going to present a lot of problems for Steve. But next up, we've got a fascinating fight, closely lined. Joe Selecki here, Joe Gracie, some call him, taking on Drakkar Close. And, you know, this is a, a really fascinating fight for me because my gut feel here is just that Joe Selecki is going to submit this guy in the first round, you know, um, and I could be completely biased, you know, um, when you look, Drakkar Close never been submitted, but he also hasn't fought that many times. Uh, I think if Benil Dariush didn't want to have the greatest knockout of all time, he could have submitted him when he was on Dream Street there, uh, certainly. And, um, you know, just looking back, who's going to submit him from the Hoffa Garcias, the Brandon Jenkins, the Yagos, the Bobby Greens, the Venatas, the Dia Casey's? I just don't see a, a great submission threat in there uh, among the bunch. You know, probably the closest thing to that would be a Hoffa Garcia, but he's more of a pace grappler, I think, than anything. And, um, you know, so credit to Jakar uh, going out there and getting that win. But when you look at a guy like Joe Selecki, I think one positional mistake and the fight could be over shortly thereafter. You know, I think uh, Austin Hubbard is typically a guy who who's pretty defensively responsible. You could out grapple him, but he's pretty tough. He's pretty, um, you know, durable in some ways. I obviously got finished his last fight, but when you look at um, how Joe Selecki handled him, there, just instantly takes it back and the fight's over. So I think that Joe has a great back take series. What I'm kind of looking at here though, Rich is the fight not to go the distance is plus money. And that's interesting to me when you've got one guy in Joe Selecki who can be chin-checked, who can kind of gas out. Uh, obviously, he's lost two decisions before, but he's also been knocked out one in one career to the knockout for Joe Selecki. He's a prolific submission artist. And then Jakar Close on the other side, maybe not known for being the biggest power puncher, but the headliner of this event is Benil Dariush, and he was on absolute skates before he knocked out Jakar Close in that fight. Um, so we know that Jakar can can land some big shots and he's O and O career to the sub, right? That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for knockouts. He's looking to win decisions, outpointing people, sprawl and brawl type of guy. So when I look at that on paper, I just think that a little bit more upside with Joe Selecki here. Um, but I could see either one of these guys getting the finish. How do you feel about this one, Rich? Yeah, we agree, man. Um, I like Selecki. Um, I think he's got a chance of getting the submission. And, um, yeah, this, this is what I do when I go through the fights, man. It's like I was saying, Horf and Hardy, going to be some bullshit decision. Terman by KO, uh, maybe Bellato by submission, Costa by decision. And then, uh, yeah, we get a submission from Selecki. You know, we're not going to have three or four um, submissions on the, on the prelims. So, yeah, I think this is a, this is a spot where the uh, submission could come into play, obviously, with Selecki. I don't like closer, and it's from the outside stuff, man. The ACL injury he was doing rehab back in bloody um october for it still some physio which i don't like to see 
He's got a heavy kicking game, calf kicks. Um, I don't think that's going to bode well, you know, going with the surgery and that a year off, uh, 35 years old. So I'm kind of betting against that also. Um, but then, yeah, just in terms of the stylistic matchup, I like Joe. We've seen Benny take uh, Drakkar's back all of round one, put the body triangle in. Um, he just didn't get the rear naked. Um, yeah, I, I like the submission shot, man. I, I definitely won't be betting closer. I will be sweating in round three. I'll say that much because Joe does slow down. We've seen it numerous times. Um, so, yeah, if it goes into round three, uh, like Andrew's saying, I, I will be sweating. But uh, I think close is a bum, man. Um, I don't like him much, to be honest. Um, I don't think he's got much of a KO threat. It will be literally if Joe death gasses. But we've seen in the Jared Gordon fight. I know he slowed down in that. But, you know, he was still there. He was still uh, defended and stuff. So I think Selecki wins it just by dominating round one. Uh, doing enough in round two and then hanging in there in round three. Probably a decision, but I can understand why you take a shot on the submission, man. Yeah, and that's just, um, you know, when I'm looking at it, I, I just see a guy in Dracar Close who has dealt with a lot, like you mentioned, outside the cage. Um, you know, from the neck injury with Jeremy Stevens to uh, the surgery that you mentioned, uh, it just seems like there's there's a lot of other things that he's got to worry about. And for Joe Selecki, you know, I, I think that there's a, a confirmed ceiling for him in this lightweight division, but I also think he can submit a lot of guys. You know, he's very competent, very capable in that regard. And so if he can get to his positions, especially early, I just think the core competencies there might even be, um, you know, superior to somebody like uh, Benil, who he's very functional for all his MMA grappling, but a lot of times he uses it defensively. You know, just looking at Benil's game overall, or he uses it aggressively to try and kill people. You know, he's trying to punch a hole through Charles Oliveira's head, not trying to pass the guard and, and technically submit him or something. So that's just the way I feel like Benil operates. He's a much more aggressive fighter um, and looking for knockouts. So I think that Joe Selecki is like, give me the neck, give me the neck, give me the neck by any means necessary. Uh, and I like that about him. So let's I go liked his interview too, Joe. Uh, I never heard him speak before. I never watched any of his interviews, but... Seems like an intelligent guy, man. Like the things he was saying uh, about, you know, being full time in this now, being able to like let his missus not work and look after the kids. And that was like um, a load off his mind and, you know, where he's training. So smart guy, man. I like where his head's at. Good stuff. We love to hear that. And I just wanted to give a quick shout out to Lenny Main with the 499 dono says, just Lenny. win. What's good? Liam, what's good? Lenny, we appreciate you being here, brother. Thank you for the support. Uh, and thank you to everybody who's tuning in live. We got almost a hundred people rocking with us live. I hope everybody's dropped a like on the show. If you're enjoying the conversation so far, trying to give you guys some insights, trying to give you guys uh, some sharp positions, whether you're with us or against us, uh, sharp information to target these fights. So God bless. Um, as we move on to this next fight, let's talk about Cody Brundage and Zach Reese should be a fun scrap here where the talk of the town, man, is Cody Brundage value at plus 190, Rich. The people want to know. Um, and I'll kick it to you first, brother. What do you think about this middleweight? Uh, I feel sorry for Cody, man. He needs to sort his head out, give his head a wobble. Um, I think everyone should go and listen to his interview on uh, on YouTube for this fight uh, with All Stars. It was alarming to me, man. It was just riddled with lies and excuses and... Um, yeah, he just can't be honest with himself. Um, I commented on one of his posts and he replied to me, that's not good on fight week. Like, what are you doing talking to me? You should be training. So, 
I don't think his head's fully in the game. I think he's very fortunate to be offered a new contract after his last fight. I think he was very fortunate to get the DQ in his last fight over Malkoon. He was on his way to being TKO'd. Very fortunate in that situation. But um, I do have a heart as well, though. I do I do find it hard to hate on the guy. He's got a family in that man. He seems like a nice, like, uh, soy type of guy. But um, he just needs to be more honest, man. Just say you quit in there because it was the last fight on your contract. You was about to get TKO'd and you wanted to live to fight another day. Just be honest with the fans. I would have respected that. But... Just full of bullshit. Talking about he's got spinal injuries from that TKO from Malkoon, which is just utter bullshit. He's seen a he's seen a sports psychologist now. Uh, deleted his social media for a short time. I don't like to see that kind of stuff either. But in terms of the matchup, uh, we've seen in Dana White contender series fight Reese. Um, he got dropped, um, which isn't good, man, because this guy's got all the length and height in the world, man. He's a big fucker. So uh, he should be using it better. And even in his regional tapes, I've seen that he doesn't use it well. So, you know, Cody is live to um, to knock him down here, whether it be a, a one-time KO, I doubt it. But he is live, man, because Reese doesn't use his length like he should. Um, but I do think at some point in this fight, Reese is going to KO him. Uh, Reese is going to try and keep it on the feet. He's been working in Thailand. Uh, I watched his interview also. He's very confident. You know, he's on the up. Wow, you look at someone like Cody, man. He's down in the dumps. Doesn't look um, that motivated to me. So, yeah, Reese KO. I wouldn't mind a shot at round two. Um, you know, maybe Cody comes out hot, trying his best. But, you know, them doubts are going to kick in again when he faces some adversity. He isn't going to like the shots from this guy, man. Um, so, yeah, I think at the numbers, um, anything on Reese is pretty much unplayable. But I don't mind that shot on KO round two, man. I, I imagine it's around plus 500, something like that. What do you think? Yeah, when I look at this fight, man, um, I think that, you know, <laughs> I'm expecting a violent end no matter who wins the fight. You know, when I look at Cody Brundage, he doesn't do very much well, but he throws with power. You know, he's got committed power. Uh, I learned that the hard way. I bet on Treshawn Gore. I was like, where, where is Cody Brundage better than this guy? And he just knocked him out in the first round. I felt like Treshawn Gore was the better fighter. I felt like he was winning the exchanges. I thought he looked good. One big shot, the fight was over. Adolfo Vieira, I think, is a way better fighter than Cody Brundage. But he almost got knocked out twice in that fight in the first round. You know, he got dropped very badly. He had to recover. If you don't have a sophisticated deep half guard game, maybe you just get finished right there. You know, so uh, I think that Adolfo was able to recover and, and make a lot of mistakes and still win the fight. Um, but I do think that Cody Brundage has that power and that's what, a, a scared animal does, right? When, when he gets backed up into a corner, he starts throwing really hard or he goes for a, a, a committed full out guillotine and it either works or it doesn't work, you know? And the only times where he's went to decision is Cedric Dumas and Nick Maximov, who are both just trying to like grapple and like, just get, you know, just wrestle, just get on top, that kind of game. So what I'm expecting here is Cody Brundage to probably come out and try and land a big shot on the feet. Cause to tell you the truth, Rich, I think Zach Reese has pretty awful striking defense. You know, like he walked yep. forward and got hit cleanly against Aronoff the whole fight. And then to your point, you know, he got knocked down, but I mean, the way he got knocked down is comical. He jumps in the air. And the, I, I thought the announcers were very charitable to describe that as a flying knee attempt. He just jumped. He was like, Ah, he just like jumped into the air like he was a ski jumper or something and just got hit clean down the middle and fell over. Like it was completely ridiculous. Now, 
the fact that he was able to scramble from his back at the arm bar, that all looked clean. I was like, man, nicely done. But when you just look at the fact that Aronoff kind of cleared the angle on the arm bar and then got sucked back into it, that was like a mental lapse. Like he just kind of made a mistake. You look at these other fights, like I just feel like Zach Reese has a, some definite physical upside, but I see him getting hit cleanly on the chin. That What I had noted about him before Contender Series, I was like, yeah, he looks like a physical guy. He looks like a strong guy. Um, you know, he's got a decent enough ground game, but it just seems to me like he's constantly like off balance or like, you know, just getting hit with his chin right up in the air. And so far it hasn't been him, but like I can see that at any point costing you at 185. And Cody Brundage has shown against guys that are way more proven than Reese that he could bang people out of there or hurt them very bad. So I agree with you. Reese is probably going to win this fight. He's probably the side. But what I was more bullish on was the under here. And not at minus 200, minus 225 in these numbers, but I got a little bit lower than that. And I was like, when I just look at this on paper, like most of the win equity in any Cody Brundage fight for him is in round one when he's fresh. You know, he's gotten, uh, what's his name? Jacob Malkoon via DQ. He, he's literally hit for the cycle in round one, Rich. He hit uh, DQ in round one against Malkoon, sub round one against Dolce, KO round one against Treshawn Gore. So this guy's hit for the cycle in round one. Uh, in the UFC. And then meanwhile, most of the time he's ready to bag things up and quit in the first round if things aren't going well, you know, and we saw that against Hadolfo. I think it was early in round two, but then against um, what's his name? Uh, Malkoon. I mean, that was like seconds away from being Malkoon TKO one potentially, uh, you know, so I just think of this as a, a spot where somebody is likely to get, uh, you know, finished in devastating fashion, but there's a Texas guy. We're in Texas. And I think they put this together because they're like, Cody, this is your last fight in the UFC. Good luck. I think Zach Reese is probably going to land some big shots and either get cleaned up early or clean up Cody early. Uh, and I also think that if Cody tries to force his own wrestling here, he's not that confident in it. He's not that successful with it. And Zach Reese seems like a guy who's very confident in his ability to just throw up subs off his back. So I wouldn't be too surprised if we saw a sub here either. That's the thing that kept me off the ends KO here, because again, the ends KO is like evens in a fight where I'm like, these two boneheads are going to swing hammers at each other. And I don't think either one of them has defense, but when I just look at it, I'm like, I don't know. Cause I could see Cody just ended up on the ground getting tapped and like, you know, vice versa. What if Reese is just not good in round two, you know, cause the other thing is we've not seen that from him, right? He's cleaning up everybody in the first round. And again, against the guys he's fighting, he should do that. He's fought mostly cans, right? Except Aronoff, who's a decent fighter. I thought Aronoff was going to win that fight, honestly. And Aronoff lost the fight. Okay, no problem. But in any case, you see, like, this is a spot where is Reese for real? We, I still don't know. I feel like I have no idea if Reese is for real at all. Um, but he's a Texas guy against one of the more fraudulent guys that we do know in the UFC. I feel like they're trying to set him up for a big early finish. So I went with the under and I'm kind of steering into the volatility of a middleweight matchup where we've seen Cody Brundage fights end in a flash many times in all sorts of different ways. So that's what I'm leaning into here is hopefully Cody uh, either does it all early or just gives up and, and gets out of there. That'd be fine too. Yeah, that's a, that's interesting, man. I was just looking at his sub wins to see what type they were and he's got a triangle. He's got um, a guillotine win. Um, I didn't really consider that the fact that like what Cody's going to do in there and you know in the big cage at distance um, he's going to try and close that by shooting for a takedown so I like submission round one as, as we're talking about it now um, I just said I can get it at 245 um, just the submission on its own so um, yeah I don't mind that angle man 
just based on what Cody's going to do. He's going to try and shoot. Um, he, he's not going to want to know anything on the feet, in my opinion. So, yeah, I think it could be a sub round one type of thing again, man. And um, yeah, just to address what um, someone was saying in the chat regarding Reese in round two. Yeah, we haven't seen him in round two. Um, maybe he's shit. Um, maybe he's a round one or bus type fighter, but I don't think so, man. He's 29 years old. Um, he looks pretty trim and athletic. And uh, I think it's just a case of like the guys he's been fighting. You know, you can only fight who's in front of you. And, uh, you know, he's been finishing them. I don't think come round two, he's just going to death gas and die. And uh, I don't want to put too much stock into that happening either. I'd rather put stock into, you know, the guy on the other side who have got a large sample size of being a bitch and quitting and losing against Damas and fucking, you know, quitting after round one and needing pep talks. I'd rather put stock into that, man. I've seen Cody quit. I've seen him, like, doubt himself. So I'd rather fade that than, you know, put stock into Reese fading in round two when I've never seen it. It's easy to say, oh, we've never seen him in round two. Let's fade that. How about let's not fade that and trust the guy? You know something, Rich? I like to talk about proof of concept, right? And it's just that I want to have seen it before. So sometimes you can bet into something and say, like, this is speculation. You need more plus money. You need more, uh, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, big odds to do that. But then I yeah. think that's kind of corresponding with what we're getting here. Reese is, you know, pretty heavily favored to win the fight, right? He's 70% to win the fight. But Reese round two is plus 600. Reese round three is plus 1400. So if you want to make a speculative investment on, hey, maybe this guy does have good cardio, then there is a path to him looking like a clear hindsight favorite. He is heavily favored in the market. And then also just having better cardio than Cody Brundage, who doesn't have great cardio as it, and has slowed down in some of his fights anyway. So, um, you know, as an under better, that might be another, um, another interesting way to target this fight. So something I'm going to at least consider here. But with that being said, we can move along to a much more interesting fight where we've got Misha Cupcake Tate <laughs> at Bantamweight taking on Julia Avila. And this is a fight where, you know, for me, a lot of boxes were checked on the Misha Tate side uh, after doing my research this week, Rich. And what do I mean by that? I mean that I think that Misha Tate has fought the much better level of competition, you know, which I don't always hold up as the highest regard. But I like to know that if I'm betting into something like youth advantages or something like that, I want it to be a real advantage. You know, I want it to be three years, five years, seven years, eight years, like a big gap. And no, like this is one person who's on their way out. And this is one person who's on their way up. We have Julia Avila here who has the longest layoff of any fighter on the card. Right. And Julia Avila, I had said maybe two or three years ago, four years ago, whatever it was on Twitter that I, I kind of liked her game. I was like, you know what? She's got some power, you know, she's aggressive. She comes forward. But then the Sajara Eubanks fight is like the comeback to earth, right? She's minus 280. Everybody expects her to win. And she's getting easily out-wrestled after she bum-rushes her. She does a great job, right? She's landing big shots. And so she's not completely hopeless, but she was basically fighting like a, a backyard brawler. You know, she's out there like just like throwing a big set of combinations. Nothing wrong with that. But she's doing that. And then Sajara Eubanks level changes in the most predictable fashion of all time runs her directly across the cage, sprints the entire length of the fence, and then picks her up, takes her down, and the fight changes completely. And Sajara Eubanks then goes on to take her down multiple times, to control her for most of the fight, to make her scramble. And by round two's end, I thought she was huffing and puffing like she had smoked a pack of cigarettes. Like she's a... <laughs> and I, she was like getting, you know, a pep talk from her corner and all this stuff. 
And then Sajara Eubanks, guys, if you see the takedown she hits in round three, that is not working in a high school wrestling room. I'm telling you right now, somebody's hitting you with hips and you're falling back over. She grabs a single leg, steps to the outside and like hits her with her head and she just falls over to her back. Fight for Sajara Eubanks. So Sajara Eubanks almost submitted her multiple times in round two. You know, she just had her in tough spots. And now Sajara Eubanks, Jiu-Jitsu world champion, we'll give all the caveats, all those things. She's also a girl who fought at 125 pounds. She's also a girl who's like barely struggled to keep a 500 record as a professional, right? So yes, she has good credentials on the mat, but we've seen other women out, out scramble her on the mat. We've seen her tire out against many people. And Sajara Eubanks was completely exhausted in round three, still able to get the takedown, still able to get on top of her as a big underdog. So when I look at that, I say to myself, man, is Julia Avila for real? Well, then she takes a long time out of the cage and I'm like, okay, you take a long layoff. You know, who was here more recently? Misha Tate. Who's been more active? Misha Tate. Who fought the better girls? Misha Tate. Who's a former champion? Misha Tate. Who drives money and interest? Misha Tate. Am I missing something here? I'll take the plus money and find out. Rich, please go ahead with your thoughts, brother. Yeah, this is the last person I'll be mean to uh, after Cody, man. I'll be nice after after this one. But, um, yeah, I don't understand it either. Um Avela, why she was the favorite in this one. Not only do you take out, you know, the outside stuff that's going on, the uh, she's coming back, you know, post-pregnancy, uh, ACL surgery, um, you know, two plus years off. Um, and then if you go on Instagram and you check out her post, you know, after she had the ACL surgery, she said verbatim, quote unquote, uh, we've give the career a go now. It's time for us to start a family. Um, this is a cash grab to me, in my in my opinion. Um, I don't I don't think um, I don't think she's going to beat Tate, to be honest. Uh, we've seen pictures of her, you know, doing her little warm up thing for the UFC on Fight Week. You know, she got a bit of a gut on her. She was talking about, you know, how she struggled to take the weight off after having a baby. Um, just multiple red flags, man, and. Uh, I said it myself after watching Misha in her last fight that I probably won't be betting on her again. But it's all about the matchup, man. And I can't make allowances for the last fight for Tate. You know, it was a, an experimental thing going to 125. I think she really depleted herself getting there. So that was half the battle. And um, yeah, Laura Murphy's a tough bitch, man. Yeah, she's old, but um, she's tough as nails. We've seen that in the Andrade fight. Andrade couldn't finish her. So um yeah, there's no shame in that, man. And if you look at Misha's record, she's only lost to um, tough girls, man. When she come back from pregnancy, um, you know, she was looking a lot better than Avela did. And then, um, you know, she didn't have ACL surgery or any of that bullshit. So I like to take to get it done. I'm surprised she's underdog. Um, I guess if you take out all these outside intangibles out of the question, you know, the injury and whatnot, Maybe I'd have taken Avela. You know, she sits down on her punches. She hits hard for women, women's MMA. But she's a bad wrestler. Um, she's bad off her back. She can be pushed against the cage. And I think that's where Tate's going to have success. So, uh, yeah, I'm in on Tate, man. And I, I even don't mind some ITD, round two or three. You never know, man. Like you were saying, she had bad cardio. Um, anyway, I felt when she, um, when she was the... Uh, the nail and not the hammer. So I don't mind some Tate ITD in round two or three. I think that's a good look also, man. Yeah, I tend to agree. You know, um, when you look at Misha Tate, she kind of has an archetype of fight that she wins, you know, and then she has an archetype of fight she loses, right? She either gets her ass whooped, 
right? Uh, where she kind of just gets beat up on the feet, uh, doesn't get her game going. And, you know, that's always a live possibility, right? She's a little bit older. She's 37 years of age. Um, but when you look at her last fight, Lauren Murphy last time out um, fought the fight of her life. I mean, look, career great. Am I, am I crazy for thinking like Lauren Murphy, who, by the way, is kind of like, you know, peaking at a later point in her career. Everybody peaks at different points. You know, uh, Daniel Cormier is fighting for titles at like 36, 37 in these guys. And we know that at upper weights, that's a little bit more possible. But when you're looking at the women's division, you know, Lauren Murphy's a little bit anomalous. And she went out there, had a title fight and looked terrible, right? Didn't go her way. That's a title fight, right? I think she kind of shit the bed, Rich, like where she went out there and underperformed relative to her own expectations. So oftentimes that's a letdown spot. I thought Misha Tate was going to win that fight. I didn't bet it, but I just looked at it and I'm like, Misha is a girl that, you know, is coming down to 125 seems really serious. Here's what happened in my view. She depleted herself physically, kind of left herself nothing at 125, you know, a little bit older in her career. And then on the other side, Lauren Murphy is embarrassed. She's like, man, I just went out there and got washed in a title fight that I've been trying to get for a long time. I got to go out there and make a statement to show that I still belong here. And that's exactly what she did. Stuffed all the takedowns, fought a really smart game plan, landed a lot of really hard shots, ate a lot of really big shots, and no sold them. For Misha Tate, that's the other thing that impressed me. Misha, after she had been beat up a little bit, a lot of people were saying like she checked out mentally and she didn't seem like she was still fighting. I disagree. I just thought she was overmatched. You know, she was landing a couple elbows, a couple punches that I think would have dissuaded a lot of other girls and set up those takedowns. But Lauren Murphy is one tough bitch and she does not care. She is going to continue to swing. And so I just feel like Lauren Murphy uh, has distinguished herself as very tough for a lot of women to deal with at 125. Like even the the women that beat her with the exception of uh, Valentina, they don't do it cleanly. Most of the time, it, it's a tough fight. Um, you know, Andrade, I think being the exception there as well, but when you look, um, I, I think of this fight as Misha Tate chance to get back on track. She was supposed to fight Myra Buena Silva. And I think people missed that that was like a scheduled booking. So, you know, the UFC kind of tried to put her in a big fight, didn't work out. Now they're putting her in a fight that's a lot more low profile, but I do think that this is a potential, uh, leap, you know, a potential leaping off point. And what was the Marion Renault fight? This is the last time I bet on Misha Tate. You know, I faded her with Ketlin Vieira at chalk. I was like, Ketlin Vieira, big girl, strong, knows judo, not going to happen, Misha. Um, so I was pretty sure there that that was a bad idea. That's a five-round fight, you know, at 135. She showed that she could still do that on this comeback. And that's against a girl in Ketlin Vieira who's got hands, who didn't want to beat her up. Otherwise, she probably would have finished her. But in any case, she bloodied her eyes and all this stuff. Misha showed me she's still tough. She still wants to be here. And so if she gets the takedowns, I think it's a whole different ballgame. That's what happened against Marion Renault. She got the takedown. She easily finished her by the end of it. And I kind of feel like we're going to see Misha on top in rounds two and rounds three. So I like those props that you shouted out there, Rich. Uh, and we could leave it at that. I we're on to the main oh, please go ahead. Should, should we tell them who's going to win the fight and what's going to happen afterwards? A little theory. I mean, yeah, why not? I mean, do you want to take it away or should I? Yeah, I'll, I'll go, man. So, yeah, we were chatting about it and uh, we were looking at UFC 200. He was on that card. Um, obviously, UFC 300 is coming up in July. Um, so we're looking at, you know, which potential, potential fighters are going to be on that. And uh, if you go and look at UFC 200, everyone on the main card, um, you know, was a big star. You know, they had big Instagram following, big socials, um, marketable people. And one of those people was uh, Misha Tate. Um, so our little theory um, 
is, well, I don't want to speak for Liam, but my little theory is Tate wins this one and uh, she'll be on UFC 300 in a retirement fight and she's even going to fight uh, Pena or um, who was the other one? Shevchenko. Or there's a small percentage, you know, people have been talking about it for a while now that Ronda's coming back. We've seen it before with Brock Lesnar. Um, the UFC have got a good relationship with the WWE. Brock Lesnar, obviously, um, has fought on some of the big cards for the UFC. So, yeah, even Ronda coming back for a one-time fight uh, would be something. Obviously, she's got beef with Tate. Tate's obviously someone who Ronda, if she did come back, could easily sub in round one, as, uh, as she's done before. But, yeah, in short... Tate wins this one, has a retirement fight at UFC 300. You know, she's got a huge social following, 2 million followers on Instagram. She's one of the biggest, um, you know, social stars for the UFC. Um, but, yeah, that was pretty much it, man. I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, I'll add just two brief snippets. Um, and, you know, the, the first one is I'm going to keep one pretty close to the vest uh, until everything shakes out just because – if the fight gets made, then I will have a bet on the fight. Um, so with that being said, I, I'm going to keep one of them close to the vest. But what I will mention is I agree with you, and I do think it's not uh, implausible that we see Misha Tate on uh, the UFC 300 card. And to your point about Ronda, do I expect Ronda to come back? No, I don't. I don't. I think it's a lower percentage. But here's what I will say. You know, Dana was just talking on some podcasts about, hey, you know, we got a super fight brewing. No, it doesn't involve Connor. Okay, well then, who does it involve? You know, there's not many people that could be involved in a super fight. I do think the return of Ronda Rousey would qualify as a super fight. I do think the massive impediment to Ronda Rousey's return is the fact that Amanda Nunes would have absolutely washed her in a rematch. So she had no interest in coming back for that. Now it's at a point where there's like vacant titles and everything's kind of a miss. So I do think there's a chance uh, that we see you know, Rhonda have that comeback opportunity. And one thing that I will, I will give as a piece of my narrative building here, it's just that I saw an interview that Misha did where somebody asked her, you know, straight out, would you do the rematch with Rhonda? And she said, oh, you know, I would love to, I think at this point in my career, it would go different, you know? Um, and she said, but Rhonda, you know, we have a lot of respect for each other. You know, she's like, we don't talk. She's like, but you know, Rhonda obviously is doing her own thing. She's got a family, whatever. She's like, but I think the only thing that would ever make her come back is her pride. That's it. like, literally, that's the end of the interview. So that's, that's where it cuts off right there. It's like, yeah, I think the only thing that would make her come back is her pride. And when I heard that, I was like, if Misha Tate wins this fight, is she going to be like, hey, Rhonda, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, uh, you know, cause a beef or anything like that. It's all out of respect, but I think I could beat you now. I think it's all different. <laughs> and so if you want to do it again, let's make it a big one at UFC 300. Uh, I think that would be an absolute banger. So there's your narrative craft as well. Uh, Misha Tate, Ronda three. Um, that's my alternate theory. But if you want the other one, um, you'd have to message me privately. I, I ain't sharing that one publicly just yet. Um, but that, I will share it on Patreon or whatever. But it's just a theory, right? So right now the fight is just a figment of my imagination. But if it gets booked, um, if the numbers line up with where I think they will, then it would be a, a big play for me. In all likelihood. So with that being said, my man, let's move on to this main card. We got great main card action. And I was laughing that um, one of these things is not like the other. Now there's two of these things that are not like the other. We've got a six fight main card here and the top four are exceptional quality. These middle two, they're very good, but not quite that same level. So let's start in earnest with Punahele Soriano taking on Dustin Stoltzfus. 
And I believe that I started off last time. So why don't we kick it off with you, Rich? How do you feel about this one? Um, I think Puna is probably luck of the cards, to be honest. Um, I'd be wary playing him ITD or KO or sub or any of that shit. Just because, you know, it could easily be a decision. He could frustrate you. Um, but yeah, I do think he's luck of the card, man, to be honest. I think that his uh, cardio issues are probably going to be overstated by people this week. Uh, I think he's going to be fine in that respect. Um, you know, Maximov, when he fought him, Maximov wrestled him, obviously. Um, I think there was an injury midway through the fight, but he didn't accept any takedowns, um, Soriano. Um, so I, I like that about him. And uh, yeah, his fight with Jamie Pickett, he was still taking Pickett down in round three and was fine. He's at Extreme Couture. He's got a good wrestling base. Uh, I just don't see where Stolfus is uh, any, anywhere better than him, man. BJJ, nope. Um, striking, definitely not. I do give Justin a bit of a pass for that KO loss uh, against that big German fucker um, who front kicked him in the face. Um, notoriously, you know, aside from that, he doesn't get KO'd. So I don't think Sariano is going to KO him. I think if Sariano wins, it's going to be a submission along the way. I think um, Stolfus is going to try and implement takedowns and probably get reversed and end up on bottom. And I think Soriano by submission is a sneaky play, man. The number's nice too. Um, Stolfus is one of four in the UFC. The one win come against um, Dwight Grant. You know, who, who cares about that? And to be honest, he had to wrestle fucking that one. He just held Grant down, um, didn't really look to advance, was happy to get a win. Um, so yeah, Soriano. If, if you like the number, I think he's luck of the card, parlaying with somebody. Um, but yeah, I like him a lot, man. Yeah, I tend to agree here. You know, um, Puna let me down in the past. You know, I've kind of had really high expectations for him. I bet him uh, at Pickham against Brendan Allen. Really stupid bet in hindsight, right? He kind of just got worked like a part-time job in that fight. But I think the length and the striking of Brendan Allen really surprised me there. You know, Brendan fought really smart which is not something that you always could say, but on this recent streak, he's kind of shown off that IQ a little bit. Even last time out against Paul Craig, kind of made him uncomfortable, brought him to the ground, beat him up a little bit. So I think he always invites a little bit of volatility, but what he did against Puna that was really wise is he beat him up with body kicks. We saw the exact same uh, formula replicated by Roman Kopilov. What do those two guys have in common? You know, um, they're both really difficult outs in the division, you know, like Brendan Allen has been on a quiet tear, um, you know, a ton of wins in a row now. And basically you look at the losses, they're all aging just fine. You know, uh, losing the guys that are tough, losing the guys that are tough outs for other guys in the division. So, you know, nothing to really sneeze at. When you look at the Maximov loss for Punahele, I thought number one could have judged that for Punahele. I thought it was a really close fight. Could have went either way. But on top of that, you know, to your point did, uh, force, you know, Maximov to basically just crotch sniff, not get many takedowns, but kind of keep him in these defensive postures, side on against the fence. And Puna did tear his ACL or some uh, kind of knee injury over the course of that fight. And so I do think that limited his mobility. But we've seen, you know, that the problems I think for Puna are the IQ, the pacing, the cardio, um, you know, overall, but also just how to deal with body kicks. He just doesn't deal with them very well. So guys get off with free big attacks like that. I think if Stoltzfus is smart, he's going to go out there and try and spam body kicks and see if Puna's done anything to address that. But I also think Extreme Couture, not a stupid gym. You know, Puna's not a bad athlete. They're looking at a guy and they're probably going to say, hey, listen, Puna, we need you to be more coachable. We need you to not get hit with big shots to the body in this fight and be smart. 
So whether that's going out there and forcing this guy to box, where I think Puna would have a huge advantage, he's just a little bit more powerful with all his shots. I think if they traded one-to-one or two-to-one Stoltfus, I think Puna would do more damage, truthfully. So when you look at that factor, and then you look at the fact that Puna is probably as likely to take this fight to the mat in this fight, you know, taking down Gerald Mearshart is a different story than taking down somebody like Puna. Just because Gerald wants to be on the mat, he's more than happy to. He, I, yeah. I literally picked... Gerald Mearshart, round three, sub in that fight. And I'm not Nostradamus. That's what he does. He just waits until you get tired, and then he gets you, right? And Stoltzfus was forcing the takedown, forcing the takedown, and then he got tired. And he kind of has done that in a few fights. Hadolfo hit, like, the craziest back take of all time against this guy uh, as well. So I just think when you look at him, he kind of slows down over the course of his fights. I think the UFC realizes that as well. Dwight the Body Snatcher Grant. You know, all love and respect, New York guy, but he was like 37 years of age and probably only got that fight because it was in New York. So I just think that Dustin Stoltzfus, not long for the organization. Punahele, extreme couture guy. I think they're going to try and get him back on track here. Um, and I think he's going to get the win. So give me Puna. Give me Puna, ITD. Um, you know, I think he's probably going to finish it in the first round. Um, and I think the sub is live here. To tell you the truth, Rich, I wanted, you know, 10 to 1, 12 to 1, something like that, to, to play the sub here on Puna, just because he's such a violent guy. You know, like he wants the Pez dispenser people's heads. Uh, that seems to me like his like true desire in life. But um, I also think, you know, when we've seen in the past, he's gotten rear naked choke finishes, the number at 7 to 1, very appealing. And I think I like to structure it ITD and then the, the bigger plus money prop. Uh, that's probably what I would look to do here on the Puna side. And honestly, if you could get a stale number on Puna, that, that is something I'm looking at. ABC say always bet on cardio. That's the only thing that gives me trouble here, but I don't think Stoltzfus has good cardio either. And I think that's, you know, Jamie Pickett would probably be a tough matchup for Stoltzfus too, because he's athletic. Uh, I think that would be an honest fight. Whereas I think yeah. Puna could just bail himself out with takedowns. I see the same thing here. So with that being said, we can move along um, to the next fight here, where we got Clay Guida taking on Joaquin Silva. How do you feel about this one, Rich? If I could bet on Silva via guillotine, I would. Um, that's the only thing I like in this fight, to be honest. Um, I think Silva's got too many uh, steroids in his body, uh, too athletic. Guida's too old. Ten sub losses. Um, the submission makes sense. It's a bit of wiki cap in here, to be honest. Um, a fight I'm not really interested in. I don't think Guida is going to, you know, do what he's done in a couple of his fights um, recently. But they was against like Scott Holtzman, who was retiring, wasn't really in, into the fight. And yeah, um, silver by submission, I guess. But I'm not really interested at all, man, to be honest. Uh, that's all I got, man. Yeah, I'll be short, sweet, and to the point on this fight. You know, um, I think that. Clay Guida is definitely looking a lot older in his fights. I think that the selling points for Clay is that number one, he fought on UFC 200. He's been around for a long time, company guy. Um, you know, I feel like he's got the right look, fit, sound for Texas, you know, out there burping bananas and, and cheering the great USA <laughs> with a hat on and shit. Like, I do think that there are, there are some reasons to like Clay Guida if the fight goes to the cards or something like that. Um, but here's the other thing. I think that Clay Guida is a guy that is historically not a great finisher, certainly not at the UFC level. Haven't seen much of that. Haven't seen much of that lately, especially from Clay, a guy who was known for, you know, outlasting guys, you know, maybe hitting the switch up on people that gas out, things like that. That's kind of his bread and butter historically. And I think that Silva 
you know, what's his big detriment? What's his big flaw? He's got a horrible chin. He never had a great chin. You know, uh, I think I bet him against Ricky Glenn. He got cleaned up in the first round there. Unbelievable. Um, so this guy is clearly a talented fighter. He's got skills in all positions. He almost knocked out Armand Sarukian in his last fight. But we've also seen that he kind of has his limitations, right? He's just not um, the most gifted in terms of his hardware, right? Some guys have a chin that you could hit Pedro Munoz. I tweeted it out this week. Does he have the best chin in the history of bantamweight? Hit him a million times. You just can't finish the guy. You hit this guy Silva sometimes and he just shuts off. And when I'm looking at Clay Guida by KO at plus 910, you know, 10 to one, that is something that appeals to me potentially on the Guida side. The only thing that appeals to me. Now, when you look at the other side, I think that Silva's the better submission grappler of these two. I think that Clay has come a long way. He's gotten a lot better, but at his age, at his speed of the transitions, he's always struggled with guys with a good front headlock game, whether that's with the Darce choke, the guillotine choke. I don't think he likes being in those chokes. I don't think he uh, does well in those positions. So even though he's a team alpha male guy, even though he has some wins like that himself, you just see sometimes this guy, Clay Guida, gets in a choke and quick taps because he gets really uncomfortable real fast. I see that happening here at a pretty decent clip. So for me, the things that jumped off the paper, Guida by KO plus 900, uh, Silva by sub plus 400, and then lastly, the under two and a half minus 130. I can see either one of these guys finishing. Uh, I can see Clay winning a decision here, kind of grinding it out. So those are the paths I feel like for both guys, but I just think Silva more dangerous. And I think they're trying to do him a little bit of a favor. Last time out, they ran him out there against Sarukian. Really tough fight, hard fight for him to win. And he went out there and gave a really honest account, made it a banger of a fight, honestly. So I think that now they're going to say, hey, you know, here's a guy who's a little bit on his way out, who will take a fight with anybody, but this should be a winnable scrap for you. So um, a little bit of payback for Silva. Next up, we got a fun scrap here, my man, where Sean Brady, grit and guillotines, baby, the Irish way, taking on Kelvin Gastelum. So very fun. And I'm looking at a guy, you know, with a, it, it seems to me kind of like that last fight, right? Where you've got one guy who I think is very live to win this fight by submission. That's Sean Brady plus 340. I think if Kelvin makes one big mistake, Sean Brady has the squeeze, he has the technique, he has the know-how to finish him. You know, we've just seen a number of times Kelvin makes a critical error and he does not know how to get himself back out of those positions. I do think that he's worked on that. I think he's tried to improve it, but we just know there are times when Kelvin makes completely boneheaded decisions in the grappling. We saw that most predominantly against Jack Hermanson, where it looked like white belt level defense for the leg entanglement, and he just was out of there, right? Almost injured himself in the knee. When I'm looking at the fight, though, I see another side, which is plus 320 on Kelvin Gaslam by knockout against a guy who had his nose surgically repaired, who's had about a bajillion staph infection since his last fight. And I don't mean any of this to make light of it. These are all harrowing things that we wish him the very best and I'm praying for him, but it's like, those are not good things when I'm like parting ways with my money at chalk prices, um, especially. So Sean Brady here is favored, um, but he does have some of those things in terms of baggage. Last time out, Bilal Muhammad, you know, landed some big shots on him, hurt him in the first round uh, at the end of the first round. I thought that Sean was doing a great job. He was outlanding him. He was looking clean on the feet. He was using his footwork, his movement, but then he got tagged a little bit at the end of round one. I thought it kind of shook his confidence. And then he comes out for round two and he starts panicking. You know, he's not getting the takedowns. He didn't sniff a takedown that fight, never came close to one. There was one point where Bilal kind of fell over, like literally just like fell over, like lost his footing. And Sean, instead of like tackling him to the ground, just like pushed him once on the shoulder, he hit his butt and just let him stand back up. I was like, 
Dom, what are we doing, man? Like it's just, it, it was kind of unbelievable. But when you look back, you see Sean Brady in some of these fights get the takedowns with these, you know, just blast the guy with the double, take him down. When he doesn't get the takedowns, though, he's just a guy that seems very vulnerable on the feet. And I mean that not to say his striking offense is bad. His striking offense looks clean. It looks like it hurts people at times. You know, he's got some finesse. But when you just see how he reacts to getting hit, don't like it. Never have liked it. Um, the Michael Chiesa fight, I thought, was some room for concern. Um, and when you're looking at the fact that Chiesa nearly finished him, um, you know, late in the fight, but also just like anytime they're at striking distance, Chiesa, who's not a very functional striker, is landing just clean one-twos and just stuff down the middle because he's not the biggest guy. He doesn't have the biggest stature. And I was kind of equating it to, you know, somebody like Gavin Tucker. Where, where is Gavin Tucker not good at fighting? He's good at everything. He's got great stand-up. He's got great uh, ground game. He's got good skills everywhere. His hardware just isn't ideal. You know, it's just not ideal when you're going against some of these long, tall guys, when you're going against some people that just have, um, you know, different things to offer. And so Kelvin isn't that, you know, guy. He's not a long guy. He has a very similar build and frame to Sean Brady. So the question is, can Sean Brady take him down? And I think if Sean Brady takes him down, it's not a hard fight for Sean Brady. I think he's going to absolutely dominate him. But I do think that if he's not getting takedowns, he's going to get cleaned up on the feet. So for me, another fight where I'm leaning towards the fight not to go the distance. And I think a lot of people feel differently here. You know, Kelvin, historically, a little more of a decisionator, right? When you look at, um, what's his name? Uh, Sean Brady. He's a guy that's kind of hit or miss on finishes in the UFC. I think he's going to uh, either finish or get finished in this fight at a pretty decent clip, just based on the way these two styles match up. Uh, please, Rich, go ahead. What do you think? Yeah, I like Calvin, man. Um, he's paying for my trip to Amsterdam. Uh, I ain't worried one bit. I don't think he's going to get taken down. If he did get taken down, I think he's going to be safe. Um, I think, you know, maybe he'll ride out the round, uh, Brady on top, but then come round two, he, he won't get his take. I just don't think he can take him down consecutively for all three rounds. Um, I'm not worried about the sub either. Um, I think he's more position over submission. Brady, more methodical than like a Jack Manson who's opportunistic. You, you know, obviously went for the heel hook or whatever it was, the, the leg, um, the leg block. So I'm, I'm not worried about it at all. I'm concerned if I'm betting Brady, you know, it wasn't a good look against Bilal, whether it was in Dubai or whatever. I think that just um, showed us some things about him. I went and watched the uh, Mike Yeska fight, you know, round three, another 30 seconds, and Mike would have got a submission or a TKO. Brady was done, uh, dead to rights, man. That was concerning because I don't rate um, Chiesa, um, especially at that stage of his career. You know, he's been done for a while, in my, in my opinion. Um, you know, he's, he's an analyst now. So, yeah, I don't like the Brady side, man. I, I don't agree with uh, what you're saying about his hands. I don't think he's got very good hands at all. Um, I think he's a BJJ guy playing MMA. Um, I do rate his jiu-jitsu. Obviously, he's solid there. He's been heavy on top, but look at the guys he's been fighting, man. Um, I think he's had favorable matchups. But Bilal Mohamed, TKO in your Bilal doesn't finish anybody, man. Um, so that was, um, that was pretty disgusting. Gaslam down at 170. He's looked good all week. Um, he looks trim. He looks in shape. He looks like he's taking it serious. He's at fight ready. He's going to have, um, you know, he's got some good people in his corner, Henry Cejudo. Um, so I like everything on the Calvin side, man. Um, I think it will be a finish. I watched Brady's interview. Again, here's another one with a bloody psychologist. 
um, having to work on their mental game. I don't like to hear that from him. Uh, I didn't even know about the staff infection um, shit that you were talking about or the nose situation. These are just added bonuses for me. Obviously, my bet's already in, so it's whatever. But I like to hear stuff like that. Um, he doesn't like the pressure, Brady. Uh, doesn't like the body shots. Calvin, he's an educated striker. I liked him against Chris Curtis. I love the pressure against Chris Curtis. Um, if he can, if he goes in there with that pace, he breaks Brady pretty fast. End of round one, beginning of round two, in my opinion. So, yeah, all over Calvin. And um, I'll thank him for the win. He's sending me on, on my little trip, man. Well, there you have it. Uh, certainly more bullish than I am, but, you know, I know my biases, right? And I kind of learned my lesson betting Sean Brady against Bilal Muhammad. I felt like in hindsight, really foolish bet. And so I don't want to force anything here, right? I've had a hard time betting Kelvin in the past. I've had a hard time betting Sean in the past. You know, I, I bet him obviously against Jake Matthews and a couple other guys, but just like, you know, haven't had a, a great profit. So when I just look, I'm like, okay, grid and guillotines, that's the way to my heart, right? Uh, you know, an Irish American going out there trying to apply a guillotine craft. I'm like, this is what I can support. But when I also look on the other side, you know, Kelvin in Texas seems like a guy who could get a lot of support, right? Been around the UFC a really long time, known commodity. People really like to support the guy. And now he's doing the right thing, right? He's doing the thing everybody asked for. Hey, Kelvin, if you're going to do it, take it serious, get to the right weight class, get down. And I think that that's what he's doing now. So, I'm willing to give him a second chance in a regard, right? He's got a lot of professional experience. He's fought a lot of the best guys. He's proven to have a historically very good chin. And he's also willing to stick it out. When the going gets tough, does he always bite down on the gum shield and just make it a crazy war? I would argue since the Adesanya fight, we've seen a little bit less of that. But we've still seen. He's not taking the ball and going home. You know, uh, with the exception of some mistakes on the ground where he gets submitted, the guy just doesn't quit. You know, he sticks in the fight. Um, so I do think that Kelvin is willing to take big shots on the feet to win a fight. And uh, I just haven't loved what I've seen from Sean in, in regards to taking some of those shots to this point. And I, I'm not a guy who hates on sports psychologists. Hey, if you have a sports psychologist and you come out looking like a different guy, then I'm just going to take my hat off to you. But uh, it's also, I need to believe it when I see it with, with somebody like that. Because the last time out, to your point, Rich, Bilal Muhammad's not TKOing that many people. And he was getting off on a lot of clean shots. He took some clean shots from Brady and no sold them as well. Uh, and it was the pressure of Bilal that was breaking him. And uh, I, I just didn't like what I saw. You know, the stoppage, even you could argue, was a touch premature. But it was because he wasn't defending himself, you know, even though Bilal is kind of just throwing predictable one-twos up the middle. So um, it just seemed to me like a really disappointing performance from him. And I'd like to see him bounce back. But at minus 120, you're expecting that he's doing it at greater than 50% clip. And I do wonder where the confidence is at because he admitted, you know, that was a big problem for him in that fight. He said, you know, I didn't really feel like I had the confidence where I needed it to be. And does your confidence typically increase or decrease off a loss? Typically, it's not something that's going to boost your confidence. Hey, I just got my ass kicked. Like, oh, I just broke my nose again. Like, just things that are, are really not great. So, um um, I do. I will point out this thing from Kelly, though. This has been my my one thing that's kept me off betting Kelvin. He lost a split decision to Darren Till. He's Darren Till's only win in the last ten years. I'm kidding, but uh, Rich, please go ahead. Yeah, let's talk about that as well. Look at the the resumes, man. The people who Kelvin's been fighting. He fighting fucking Izzy. Um, I even wrote the metrics down, man. Izzy was six four with a nine inch reach, and look how Kelvin held his own in that fight, man. It, it was a, a fun back and forth. 
Um, so yeah, the strength of schedule is just completely different, man. Brady's been fighting fucking Christina Aguilera, um, Court McGee, you know, people people like this, old Court McGee. And even Court McGee was fucking touching him up. This guy bruises easily, man. I've seen him go to his interview um, at, with MMA Junkie with a fucking welt under his eye. Um, so yeah, it could even be some type of doctor stoppage in between rounds, man. Once he takes a left off Calvin, it's just going to change the course of the fight, man. He, he ain't going to want to know. I'm not. I'm not sure if you heard, but he had uh, explained his performance against Kiesa by saying that he had gotten hit with like the first punch in the fight, and he was breathing blood the rest of the fight. And so that had been a concern for me, but I ignored it going into the Bilal fight because I was like, he's going to take him down. And then when he couldn't take Bilal down or even sniff a takedown, that for me was a really big concern because I think Bilal's got pretty good takedown defense, but like that level of takedown defense, like never getting close, never sniffing an attempt, never getting to the hips, it just seemed to me like that left a little bit to be desired. Uh, if you're a primary grappler and wrestler, and that's the, like what you're going to bring to the table. So um, again, maybe maybe uh, this is a, a levels performance, but uh, I'll believe it when I see it a little bit. Uh, Calvin's yeah. a pretty proven guy. What you, what you showed me in that Bilal fight, it wasn't anything to do with like the nose or anything like that. I just sent a person in there who would quit. They just mentally quit on themselves. It reminded me of Brundage against um, Dimas. And uh, Dimas just was, it's shit and didn't have the fucking minerals to finish him. Dimas should have finished Brundage in that fight. The difference is Bilal's on a fucking hot streak and he's got, you know, he doesn't finish people notoriously. But when you've got someone in Brady, that, in Brady who quit in that fight, you know, Bilal can fucking sniff that out, man. And he went in there for the kill. So fair play to him. I see quit in Brady. I've seen it against Chiesa. We definitely saw it against Bilal. And now I'm supposed to be betting on him because he may get a takedown against Calvin, who's got a fucking wrestling base. Like, what are people doing, man? But fucking whatever. Let's see what happens. Carry on. Fair play. So there you have it, folks. Um, great fight. Looking forward to it. But um, leaning towards the underdog here in Kelvin Gaslam. Um, and I like personal rooting for Sean Brady, uh, as another Irish American playing the grid and guillotines, uh, strategy, but I will just say, you know, um, it's a believe it when you see it for me at, at the chalk price. So that being said, we'll move to the next one here where we've got Rob Fon taking on Davison Dice Duguera Figueredo, fantastic fight, 135 pounds, Davison Figueredo moving up, trying to reestablish himself as a bantamweight contender after being a flyweight champion after kind of being on the shelf a little bit uh, and, and taking some time to figure out where he wanted to go with his career. And he did that, you know, long arc with Brandon Moreno, a lot of fights. And now it's at the point where, you know, he's getting thrown into the deep end a little bit. Rob Font, obviously a top 10 bantamweight in the division, um, has some real wins. Last one out um, that he got the win was over Yanez, obviously uh, decked him there and then really put himself at a, competitive disadvantage moves his fight up two weeks he's supposed to be in a big spot in boston instead he's got to go do five rounds with Corey sandhagen on short notice pretty unprepared and uh i thought he got audited in the wrestling and the grappling there but i also don't think that that's what he expected you know i think he kind of went in there like yeah me and sandhagen we're gonna bang it out on the feet find out who's better his spin kicks or my boxing and unfortunately you know uh he got taken aback you know I don't like what I saw from uh, Rob in terms of the defensive wrestling and grappling there, but 
I also think that Corey Sandhagen is a pretty clever guy. You know, he's got skills everywhere. He submitted Mario Bautista back in the day with a really sick arm bar. So I don't think Corey's bad on the mat. I just think sometimes, uh, especially in the past, he used to start slow and like people would start getting over on him and then he'd have to wake up uh, in the fight. And, um, you know, I didn't think that we saw that from him in his recent performances. I think Aljo basically broke him of that uh, curse. And now he tries to start his fights a little bit more aggressively. But when you look at Davison, he's a guy who always starts aggressive, right? Um, you know, banger with his power uh, on the feet. He's also got a very slick submission game. I love his front headlock series. He doesn't do the guillotine the same way I like to do it. He likes to do that, um, you know, basically arm in guillotine series, but he locks it up very tight. Uh, the way that he finished Perez, I thought was beautiful, although we've seen many people replicate that since. Um, but when I look at this fight, I say to myself, you know, I expect it to end violently. So I was a little bit surprised by some of the uh, the props on the fight, you know, uh, in terms of the totals, um, you know, maybe the fight not to go the distance, some of these things that I'm looking at. But when I look at the fight overall, I see a guy in Rob Font who has big power, throws the jab, normally not afraid to get into a fight with anybody. And unfortunately, right, Corey Sandhagen kind of a little bit compromised. So he didn't want to get into a fight that night. He, he avoided the fight in some ways by just out grappling him, right? And when I look at, you know, what I expect from Davis and Figueredo, I don't expect him to avoid the fight. You know, like that's, that's not how I see him at all. You know, most of the time, other guys didn't want to fight with him on the feet. So they would end up shooting a bad takedown or they would make some mistake and he will make you pay, son. He's got great transitions, but I'm not sure that his wrestling game is fully there. Um, you know, he's training with the right people. Maybe he could translate that to takedowns in this fight. But I do think of Rob Fon as a guy that has historically not bad takedown defense. Obviously, it looked terrible against Sandagen, but I think he's going to be a little bit more prepared here. I think he's got a guy who's a little bit smaller here in Davison. Um, so I think Davison has multiple paths to victory, but I think the same thing is true of Rob Font because I think he could win this fight by knockout. And I think if the fight goes to the scorecards, Rob Font throws an insane amount of volume. Um, like every time that he fights, it's remarkable how many times he's lost with a massive strike differential in his favor because he's just been clipped on the chin. He's been rocked and Figueredo has power. There's no denying that, but how does it translate up a weight class? That is something that is a question to me, you know? I don't know how his power is going to translate because we've seen Brandon Moreno take a lot of shots from Figueredo and mostly just keep coming forward and dealing with them, right? And that's a guy at 125, different weight class, different scenario. Rob Font, say what you will about how much he gets hurt, it's definitely concerning. The fact that he got club and subbed one time as well against Pedro Munoz, definitely concerning. But most of the time, Rob Font is like insanely tough. I had uh, Sandhagen sub five against Rob Font. He's been ass whipped. He's been in a fight that's been way too long, 25 minutes on short notice. Most people tap. He's stuck in a choke. There's two minutes and 30 seconds left. Nobody's going to hold it against them. They're like, bro, fair play. This guy would not tap. He refused. So I just think of Rob Font as a guy who used to be much more soft. And I don't mean that in a disparaging way. I think that's a compliment, right? He used to be one way. He's, he's much more of a guy who's difficult to finish now. He really wants to be in there. I think he's a hardened individual from the fight game. So I look at the Giannis fight. He bit down on his mouthpiece, went through the fire, got the knockout. And you look at some of these other fights, they're right down to the wire. He takes every fight that the UFC gives him. He does a lot. He falls on a lot of grenades. So could he get run over again in this spot? It's possible. But I do think we've seen some learning, some adaptation. I think this is kind of like a rerun of the Pedro Munoz fight 
And Rob Font is a lot better now. I think he's a lot seasoned, a lot more seasoned now. And so I think the same inherent volatility is there. He could still get clipped. But people forget Pedro Munoz has one of the best chins I've ever seen in MMA. Most people go to sleep in that fight if they're Pedro Munoz. He stood in the pocket and just took bing, bing, bing. His head is getting Pez dispensered. His nose is bleeding. And then after the fight, he knocks him out. Uh, or excuse me, he hits him with the big shots. Rob Font's wobbled. He gets him with the perfect guillotine choke, by the way. One of the best guillotines in the bantamweight uh, division's history, Pedro. And then he finishes him with that stands up and raises Rob Font's hand and walks him around like this because he is like, nobody's ever brought a fight to me like that. So why do I think of the under and why do I think of like Rob Font potentially winning by knockout? Because I discounted that against Adrian Yanez. I was like, bro, it's going to be a pocket boxing match. And I know that Font's good in the boxing, but Yanez is going to be hitting him with those cuffing hooks. That's exactly what was happening until he died. He got hit with one of the big ones and he just went down. And I feel like what was the difference there? Font's huge. And Yanez is like average size at bantamweight. Same kind of thing, I, I think, with Davison. He's got skills. He's, he's very talented, but I think he's going to be a very average-sized bantamweight. He's 35 years of age. Rob Font, big bantamweight, can hit you from very far away. So I'm thinking somebody's getting violently finished here. Won't be surprised either way, but leaning towards Rob Font to get it done um, with the jab, with the length, uh, and with the power in his hands. How do you feel, Rich? Yeah, pretty much the same as you, bro. Um, I bet one unit on Figgy very, very early. Um, because a lot of money was coming in on him. I hadn't done my research and I didn't want to miss the number, so I wanted something on him. Um, but yeah, since I've done done the work, man, I think Rob, the way I see it is one of two ways, man. Rob's going to knock him out on the feet. I don't think Figgy can hang with Rob. Like you said, um, the jab, he's got much better boxing. Um, if Figgy's going to win this fight, he needs to wrestle, in my opinion. Um, he could very well do that. He, he too is working at fight ready with Henry. Um, and the rest of them, Eddie Char. So they should have a good game plan. Um, the game plan should be, man, we've just seen it with Rob Font against Corey. Take the fucker down, negate his good boxing skills, that jab that he likes to pump out at a high volume, and, um, you know, squeeze yourself a decision, man. Um, Rob has looked a bit weathered. Um, that's one thing that I noted. You know, he's took some beatings off the likes of Jose Aldo, um, Marlon Vera. They fucked him up, man. Um, he took a lot of punishment. He's a, he's a tough guy, though. They they weren't able to put him out. Um, but yeah, that's what how I felt about the Corey Sandhagen fight, man. He look, just looked weathered in there um, to me. Uh, fun. So when he was getting taken down in round three, he was just like, he just didn't have it in him to like you know fight back or you know give much back. But yeah, I see it going one or two ways. Uh, Figgy, obviously, we don't know how the power is going to translate. I say uh, Figgy by guillotine, obviously that's on. You know, he's very slick with it, but, you know, that would imply that Rob's going for a takedown, um, which isn't going to happen. Rob's going to keep it on the feet. So I don't mind the the Rob KO look, man. I'm going to hedge a little bit with uh, with a little bit of that, man. But to be honest, if I hadn't bet on the fight from the outset, I would have just had some, um, I would probably have had half a unit on fun by KO and just be done with the fight, to be honest. But yeah, that's that's my two cents. Yeah, I kind of feel like um, I could see Font. I could see Font uh, by KO. If I was on Figgy sub, I'd take the ends by sub, which I saw as over four and a half to one. Um, you know, do I expect Rob Font to win by sub? No, but do I think that there's much value on Figgy sub at the same price or you know plus five fifty uh, when you can get you know end sub plus four seventy five or whatever? No, I just think I would not get cute there and and take the ends by. Um, but in any case. 
we can start to move along here uh, to the next fight where, uh, or actually I should just kick it over real quick to our guy, Ricky Chow uh, did throw a $10 dono in the chat. So appreciate you for that, Ricky. Thank you so much for the support. He says early leans on Nasrat versus Jamie Malarkey. I haven't looked into the fight at all, brother. So this is literally just a gut level feel, but Nasrat at minus 200 feels gross to me against most people. Um, do I think he's a better boxer than Jamie Malarkey? Uh, yeah, probably it will come down for me to, if he could stuff the takedowns. Um, I think that Malarkey probably more grappling upside. I've never liked Nasrat's grappling in his wrestling. Um, don't love how he reacts to getting hit at times either. Um, so Nasrat kind of seems like he's been making some small improvements, um, to his game. Jamie Malarkey's taken a ton of damage over the course of his career, but I just feel like Malarkey's kind of a, a guy who at chalk, I'm never looking to be on his side at big plus money he can almost bring me back in because he will fight like a dog for your money. And it's, it's hard to kill the man. Uh, you can hurt him. You can uh, wobble him, things like that, but he tends to be pretty hard to kill. Um, and name off was like, you know, plus four seventy five, looking like every bit of it until he knocked him out in that fight. So um, for whatever that's worth uh, rich, did you have any thoughts there? Yeah. Nasrat by decision, but I won't be playing that number. I don't like it. But if you, if you want a, an opinion on the fight, Nasrat, Nasrat will easily win a decision. In my opinion, Malaki ain't got the fire in him anymore, man. Um, he ain't finishing anybody and Nasrat's just going to do more. Fair play. Uh, and I think Nasrat is a decent enough box. <laughs> Excuse me. I will not sneeze again. That's a command. Um, but I think that Nasrat, uh, decent enough boxer, um, but he's been audited a number of times on the feet. So that's kind of what's given me pause. It's like, that's his best skill set. And Bobby Green took him to school there, um, you know, very cleanly back in the day uh, at like minus 155. So a um, couple, couple of notes there. But after I look into it, I'll have a much better answer for you, brother. Just thank you for the question, Ricky. That being said, guys, co-main event of the evening. Let's kick it off. Jalen Turner is taking on Bobby King Green. Speaking of the man, Bobby King Green is back. I told you guys that Julia Avila had the longest layoff. Now it's time to tell you guys who had the quickest turnaround. Bobby King Green. He was there in October, and he went boink, and that was the end of the fight. Uh, and Grant Dawson uh, still still recovering. So unfortunate loss there. And uh, you look back, and um, Bobby Green has just been overperforming in his recent run. Um, you know, obviously against Tony Ferguson, he was a slight favorite. Market steamed him out to a massive favorite. Market looked sharp there after all. You know, a um, little bit of, uh, you know, early adversity, but he was able to dig through that. No problem. Then come through, finish Tony Ferguson, you know, something that uh, the likes of Benil Dariush and Charles Oliveira struggled to do on the same run uh, that Tony's been on losing these fights. Bobby was able to put him away. So you look back and Bobby has honestly looked good in all of his fights, I would say, uh, recently, except for the Islam Mahashev fight. Um, the Islam Mahashev fight was just a disaster, right? He gets taken down, looked completely outmatched. And he said, that guy is on steroids. Like he, he was like, <laughs> there is no doubt in my mind that man is on steroids. Now I know what it's like. Um, and so Bobby just got physically bullied in that fight. But you look back, Nazareth Hackbrass, young guy, um, you know, guy who's technically on the up and up in that regard, uh, right side of 30. Bobby just completely outclassed and boxed him up. Retired ally Aquinta with the first couple punches of the fight. Al, Al literally got hit with those punches and said in an interview, he was like, yeah, that's when I realized I didn't want to fight anymore. So I just was like, all right, I'm out of here. And, and that was the end of the fight. So does he have the biggest power in the world? No. Does he have some knockouts on his resume? Yes, he does. 
And he does have power in his hands. You know, he's still a 155 pound fighter. He throws with a lot of commitment. He's a confident guy. If we're talking about confidence as an attribute for fighting, there's nobody more confident than Bobby Green. And one of the things I, I noticed about this fight, Rich, is Jalen Turner. I don't like the way he's talking, you know, leading up to this fight. You've spoken a few instances about the interviews that you've heard. And Jalen Turner's like, yeah, they kind of forced me to take this fight. You know, um, I, I kind of turned it down and then they offered it back to me again. So I didn't want to turn it down twice. Um, you know, basically saying like they strong armed him into taking the fight. Um, so number one, he said he didn't want to take it because they're from the same area which makes sense to me, you know, like just in, we've trained together before, you know, kind of know the guy going to make it awkward to go train again, that kind of thing. But I look at Bobby as a guy who's not afraid to fight anybody, right? We saw it against Fazeev, against a lot of guys. He'll go toe to toe. He'll stand on the feet with you. He's not looking to mix in all the takedowns and whatever. And sometimes that works out for him and he makes it really competitive, like the Fazeev fight. And sometimes he pays for it. Because against Drew Dober, I thought he could have had a much easier time just wrestling that guy, trying to take it to the ground, mixing it up. And instead, he presented himself all night. That's what Bobby Green does. He presents himself and he moves, he shuffles, but he is there to be hit. And so Bobby got hit by Drew Dober and he got knocked out bad in that one. So I started to sell, Rich. I was like, you know what? Just in my mind, I didn't bet these fights, but I was just like, I'm out on Bobby Green. The chin's gone. Like he's now just getting TKO'd by guys that I expected him to compete with at least you know, make it an honest fight. So I was like, this, this just isn't the way anymore. But you look at the minutes against Drew Dober. I didn't think he lost a minute of that fight. I thought he won every exchange rich and then just got killed. And I, I think about how I look at this. I just say Bobby green, very skilled fighter sound in all positions. I'm a, I'm a Jalen Turner guy. You look at my Jalen Turner receipts, bro. I, I have a great bet MMA on Jalen Turner, right? Uh, the sub against multiple guys. Like I I've been kind of picking my spots on Jalen Turner correctly. But when a lot of people took the, the dirt nap on Jalen Turner at these minus 200 prices, I did keep my hands off of it because you look at Jalen throughout his career, he's had weird tendencies. Like he, he's a great fighter with a bad record. He's a great fighter that doesn't win fights. It's like, there's a lot of things he does really well. And you give him a certain archetype guy who doesn't know how to grapple. He will always almost certainly defeat. You give him a guy uh, that is not capable of taking clean shots on the feet. He will almost certainly defeat them because he'll hit him in the first round, wobble them, and then he's got a perfect body type to just hop on the neck and kill. I That's what I love about him. Brad Riddell, great spot. Uros Medic doesn't know how to grapple. These were two great spots, I felt like, to target him. Now he's at a worse sub price against a better grappler in Bobby Green. That's a fact. And I don't mean like, I'm talking about these other guys that he's submitting, like Brad Riddell and Bobby Green. They're not comparable grapplers, right? Like, let's just be serious. Bobby's been doing it a way longer time way higher level in the States, not close. So you look at what Bobby knows how to do. He knows how to make fights honest and close. And if he does not get knocked out by Jalen Turner, which is a very real possibility, I think he's going to be a very honest fight. You know, I think Bobby has a good chance to make this close, make it competitive. I think if he wanted to, he could put Jalen Turner on the ground. I think people are not remembering the fact that Dan Hooker submitted Jalen Turner at the end of the fight. He just ran out of time. And I was baffled by that outcome. But Dan Hooker just outlasted this guy. And he's now making a short notice turnaround that he doesn't want to make against a guy who has typically had very good cardio. So I just don't know exactly where, you know, Jalen is going to look minus 230 in an extended fight. In, a, in the first round, Jalen at minus 230 might look like a gift because he could just come out there and blast Bobby Green. And Bobby, a little, a little confident, right? Hands low. 
Jalen hits very hard. He throws dangerous kicks. I think Jalen Turner is a, a great fighter. But I know things about Jalen Turner as well that are not positive, which is that he cuts a ton of weight. He's one of the biggest lightweights in the division, and he's doing this on short notice. He missed weight his last fight. He lost to a guy who I thought looked horrible in all of his three or four previous bouts. So you're underperforming against guys I think you should beat. Against Mateus Gamrat, frankly, I thought that was a very winnable style matchup for him. I hated the price, right? I missed the minus 154 at the opener, so I didn't play it. And then he loses that fight, and I was like, Thank God that the money ran away on that fight because I would have gotten barbecued because you look at Jalen Turner and he should win every fight. He's got every physical advantage over everybody, but the cardio isn't there to back it up. And if somebody can resist and they don't get finished and they can weather the storm, they can push him in places that he doesn't want to be. And here's my problem. He was training at Ruka gym. He looked like an investment in the UFC and all this stuff. But you start to now have a record where the UFC is going to start getting a little bit more hesitant about marketing you at. Let's pull it up. 13 and seven as a professional. I mean, like where else in the top 15 in these uh, rankings are you seeing those records? It's very uncommon. So Jalen Turner is the best 13 and seven guy on the roster. No doubt about it. He's a great fighter, but he finds ways to lose fights despite being great, despite having these skills, despite having these intangibles. And he's doing this in suboptimal circumstances. So it comes down to if it's a pick him, of course, I understand why you take Jalen Turner. He's huge. He's a monster. But when it comes down to pricing, it's a dogger pass for me. How do you feel, Rich? Um, yeah, it's funny, man. You say all that, and then I'm telling everyone I bet the fucking draw, um, <laughs> which I did. Just because I think it's got weird vibes, this fight, man. Um, you know, me and Pepe talked about it a little bit. You know, I can't see Turner losing three fights on the banks. I was very surprised to see Bobby at plus 200. You know, I, I did the tape, then I looked at the odds. And when I seen Bobby 200, I was just, um, you know, it's just perplexing, man. Um, it should be more of a pick on this fight, especially with Turner coming in. Short notice, the big weight cut. But yeah, I stuck $10 on the fucking draw, man, at like 80 to 1, just because it's got weird vibes, this fight. I like the overs. I don't think anybody's finishing anybody. Um, I think overs are a good look. Fight goes the distance. I just seen that Turner is plus 260 by decision. I think if anyone wins the decision, it's likely to be Turner, to be honest. Um yeah, and another notable thing, when I was looking at Green's record, he's fought four times in eight months, man, um, which is just crazy to be fighting every two months. So I think it's about time Green took a break. We didn't see him for a minute. I think he takes an L here, to be honest. Um, but yeah, I'm hoping it's a draw, just so I can look really smart and uh, and cash the ticket, man. But I think most likely it's going to be a Turner decision at um, plus 260. Um, yeah. I think you and Pepe on the Blunt Podcast, guys, if you haven't checked it out, make sure you check it out. Two of the sharpest in the game uh, every week, dropping some knowledge on your head top. So uh, if you guys haven't checked that out, make sure you do. But in any case, what we're looking at here, uh, I think you guys make a great point with the three losses in a row, right? And you guys made the same point about Jessica uh, Andrade, and it was very sound. It was very prescient there. Um, however, you know, I also think that Pepe in the chat made a great point, um, you know, or echoed a point that I had made, which was Ruka Jim shutting down. We saw how, how Dern looked in that post-gym shutdown, doing her own thing, setting up her own camp, you know. And when I tried to look at Jalen Turner's social media before, I wasn't seeing a lot of clear, you know, I'm training here. I'm training with these pro-level guys. It was like, I'm skateboarding. I'm doing this and that. I'm hitting the heavy bag. 
nothing wrong with that. Again, maybe he's doing it all in the dark. Maybe he's got a gym that we're, you know, we'll find out, Oh my God, he's training with these guys. Like uh, no, no problems there, but I didn't see a lot of evidence. Like this guy was in camp, ready to go raring, jumping at the bit and just got a perfect opportunity to springboard in. I feel like it was more, Hey, we really need you. Hey, we really need you. And that gives you a little more leeway as a fighter as well. If I lose this one, they're not going to fire me They They asked me to do this. They put me in a negative position. So they'll give me another chance. They'll give me a more winnable fight. And by the way, there's a million winnable fights out there for Jalen Turner at 155 pounds. But when you're looking for the most winnable fights, this doesn't strike me as one of them, right? Cause it's like savvy vet, pretty good in all positions. Like you could definitely get one over on him, but not going to be easy. And he's going to make you earn it. And you look back, um, Matt Favola, how did he beat Jalen Turner? I mean, he's a guy that's done a sketchy chin in the past, right? Three knockout loss in the first round. What was the difference there? It's just that he was able to outlast him. He was able to outpace him. He was able to use that good old-fashioned New York wrestling, baby. New York wrestling, they'll teach you how to wrestle once again. And we saw that from Matt Frivola. We saw Vicente Luque, the death dealer of 170 pounds, send him to the land of wind and ghosts in the first round. His manager should be absolutely shot and hung for that. Um, it was an insane decision to have him fight that as his first fight. But he gets in the door. He gets the win streak going. Then he loses to Frivola. No problem. Gets back on track. But let's put it in context. Josh Kulabau, now a featherweight. Uh, Brock Weaver. Not a UFC level fighter, Uros Medic, now a a guy who's getting audited by lightweights at welterweight. Um, you know, with all due respect, that was not a great uh, performance last time out. Jamie Malarkey, you talked about. I don't think he's got the fire. Uh, Brad Riddell, a guy who literally has said like, I, I'm taking a step away from my career. I'm going back to coaching and doing that stuff. Like he kind of has moved back from his fighting career after suffering a couple losses in a row. So you start to look at the Jalen Turner win streak and it's like, is this, is this a false promises? Like how many really good guys did he beat at lightweight? And the answer is not that many. So I do think Jalen Turner, real skills, real abilities, but 13 and seven at minus 250. There's a reason that I'm always a little sketchy about that, uh, especially against somebody as seasoned as Bobby. And the other thing I'll point out, Rich, Bobby has been active for a while. You go back, let's see, since. Um, since 2020, he's had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven UFC fights in that amount of time. So he's just been staying incredibly active. He had some time in between, but he's been a pandemic fighter. You know, they needed people in the pandemic to just say yes. That's what he's been doing. Yes, 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 and yes. Uh, every time they need, and last time out took no damage. So easily run it back out again. He's probably still in great shape. He's fighting Armand Sarukian's camp. He's ready to go. The only difference me and you have on this is I think Bobby Green, very likely candidate for UFC 300. Watch that space. Patty Pimblett, he's going He's going after him on social media. He's saying this, that, and the other. And Bobby was like, he really said that? He's like, I thought they AI edited or so. He's like, I, he's like, you never know in this day and age what to believe on social media. He's like, but I don't think Patty actually wants to fight me. And I think the same thing's true. So let's find out. If Bobby gets One. a big win here, he's calling out Patty. I guarantee it. Yeah, one thing I'd say by that is um, Paddy hasn't got a choice who he fights. Um, he's the UFC's golden boy, man. So he's fighting whoever's got shit takedown defense, i.e. Um, Tony Ferguson, who's just going to play off his back, try and look for triangles and not get them. Paddy's going to decision um, Tony Ferguson, but I don't think the UFC want fucking Bobby Green fighting um, uh, Paddy Pimlet. It's too risky, man. I guess we'll have to wait and see. 
We'll see how Bobby looks this weekend. If he gets wobbled again and then wins, then I think they're going to send him out there for Patty Pimblett and be like, Patty, hurt him on the feet, then submit him. Hurt him on the feet, then submit it. Dana will be coaching him in the back. Listen to me, Patty. I got a game plan for you, kid. All right, listen, kid. Slapping him in the face. Listen to me. You hear me? <laughs> That's what I'm expecting. But in any case, we can move along to the next fight, brother. We've got a banger of a main event. We've got Benil Dariush taking on Armand Sarukyan. Some fights you need talk, you need build up, you need bullshit. This one I just think is a good matchup. You got two elite lightweights, um, you know, two guys that have kind of proven they deserve to be in this top 10. But now let's rank order. Let's figure out who should be in the top five and who should be on the outside looking in. And I think of a guy like Armand Sarukyan as somebody who's ready to break through, ready to have that kind of, um, you know, moment of of exposure to the broader audience. But He's got a tough task here, right? No easy uh, assignment against Benil Dariush. We saw last time out, they didn't do him too many favorites. Joaquin Silva is obviously a guy whose chin could be compromised. He's not an elite level fighter, but he's also a guy who's tricky on the mat, who's gotten submission wins over UFC welterweights in, in pure jiu-jitsu competition. The guy is very competent in all positions, and he made Armand work, right? Armand got to some takedowns. He forced him to work back up along the fence. He forced him into some tough situations. But I thought that overall what we saw is Armand Sarukyan fought through adversity, got hurt on the feet there, dealt with it well, got to his takedowns, found a way to succeed, get on top, stay on top. And by the way, we know that uh, Silva can be dangerous in those transitions, the front headlocks, the situations like that. And Armand, from his knees, easily blasted him off of his feet, uh, which I thought was kind of impressive, honestly. So you look at a guy uh, like Benil Dariush, it's not going to be easy to take this guy down at all. What we saw against Gamrot, the guy could shut down really good takedown artists. You know, Gamrot's not a perfect control grappler. He never was. He never will be. He's more of a spam takedowns until you get exhausted and fatigued kind of guy. And I thought he fought a great fight against Benil, but he also just lost it in critical moments. You know, he got dropped. There, there goes the round, brother. You're not getting that one back. Uh, same thing with you know, just losing a couple critical scrambles where he looked like he came out of it worse for wear. And you can't do that and expect to win close fights. So he was a big favorite there. Benil fought perfect, I thought, got the win. And I thought that Charles was a winnable matchup for Benil, to tell you the truth, Rich, because you just looked at the two guys on paper. I'm like, is Charles going to take down Benil? I didn't really see that happening. So I was like, I think on the feet, Charles is more dangerous, but I could see Benil getting takedowns and just working him on top. The fight's going exactly how I think. He's on top. He takes him down early, right? And then what happens? He's punching the ground as hard as he could. Do you remember this, Rich? It was the most baffling visual to me I've ever seen in the UFC where Benil Dariush is like, and just throwing these like hammers at the canvas and just missing him by like six inches, eight inches because Charles is like seeing him load up and just like moving and just he's not hitting anything. It just seemed like an emotional performance to me. He seemed reckless like he does in a lot of fights, but he also seemed completely exhausted to me. And that was for me, the biggest problem. You know, I, I saw a guy out there who looked like he was gassed after the first round. That's not sustainable. You know, um, when we're talking about it, he got hit with the big head kick, nothing you could do about that. Right. You just get hit with a, like a shin to the face. You're going to sleep. Doesn't matter who you are. Uh, you're getting hurt. Your equilibrium has gone. All those things are fair. But I saw a guy who looked like he was exhausted from missing punches on top and kind of just got bucked off when I expected him to be able to hold that position. So Charles is great. Charles will exhaust guys from the bottom. It's scary to be on top of somebody like Charles, who you know at any point could flip the script on you, put you in a dangerous submission. So I think that Benil panicked there. I don't think he's going to have the same panic grappling with Armin, but I do think that the same pace dynamic is there, where I think 
Armin could do it for longer. I think he could wrestle and grapple for a little bit longer than Benil can at a really high level in these really high level scrambles, just at where they're at in their career. And I think the motivation level might be a little different uh, for Armin as well. What stood out to me, Rich, was just the fight not to go the distance. I know that a lot of times these main events go the distance. It can be gritting, but this is a fight that's favored not to go. And I agree with that. You know, I just look at a guy in Benil. He is a dangerous guy. He will try and kill you the entire time he's out there. He will try and hit you, hurt you, finish you. But also, you know, he could be hurt. He could be hit. He could be finished. We've seen that a number of times. Michael Chiesa hopped on his back, submitted him. Still one of the most shocking visuals in UFC history for me. So you look in and just say to yourself, is Benil above getting finished? No, he's not. Is he above fighting like an absolute savage? No, he's not. And Armand Sarukian, last time out, kind of showed me the same sort of grit where he was hurt. He was on the ropes. You know, lesser men would have quit, but he knew I'm supposed to win this fight. I cannot let this happen. I will find a way to win. And then he made him pay. You know, he beat the absolute tar out of that man for hurting him on the feet. So um, overall, I'm expecting somebody to get violently finished here. And I lean towards that being Armin that gets it done. Uh, but I, I kind of just think, you know, I might avoid a side and just bet on somebody getting it done violently here. Rich, how do you feel? Yeah, I agree, man. The unders are pretty decent numbers, man. Uh, under um, four and a half is like a 140. But what I'll be playing is Armin by submission. Um, it was 1,200. I'm looking at other books now to see if it's opened up any better than that. Um, what's the KO? Yeah, so it's dropped a little bit, to be honest. Uh, Armin by submission. It was 1,200. Now it's 800. So a lot of money's come in on the sub for uh, for Armin. Yeah, it was very alarming to me, man. In the uh, in the Charles fight, just it was just a weird finishing finishing moment against uh, Benny. Like you like you say, he's notoriously had good cardio. Looked like a, a a solid guy, man. But he just seemed to just fucking die in there. And uh, it was a very weird sequence. Um, the way that he got finished. You know, not taking anything away from Charles. Obviously, you know, he's a good striker, underrated striker. Um, but yeah, it, it was just weird, man. I just think Benny's getting a bit too old now. You know, you see on Instagram, or he's, he's bringing his kids to media day and shit like that. Uh, just had another kid. He's a family man. He's getting up there in age. Um, I just think Armin's just going to be too much, man. Um, the only concern with Armin is his wrestling um, yeah, it's good and everything, and he's got good scrambles and the rest of it, but he gets tired, man, um, you know, when there's a lot of grappling involved. We've seen that with uh, Gamrot. By round three, man, he was pretty much cooked and in autopilot mode. That's not somewhere you want to be with Benny, man, if he's still sticking around. Um, so, yeah, maybe either by submission could be a, a good play. I think um, Benny is probably the best jiu-jitsu guy that he's faced. Um, I even think, like, you know, Jiu-jitsu for jiu-jitsu. Um, Benny's on par with Islam. Um, that that would be something to see. But yeah, Benny, man, he, he is a he is a whiz with his jiu-jitsu. Um, so if Armin doesn't get him out of there early, um, I will be sweating. But I'd be more inclined to say that Armin's got to get it done. And I like the number on the submission, man. It's it's pretty wild. Yeah, you know, it's funny, Rich. Um, you just covered every prop that I had written down here. I think from a money line standpoint, I do think it's a dogger pass situation. You know, um, just from a long-term EV standpoint, you just look at Benny Dariush. He's been extremely productive as an underdog. You know, he's just performed in that role uh, over time. And people got really bullish on him last time out. But you just look at this man, just like Charles Oliveira. 
has been a prolific underdog and Jan Blahovich, a few of these guys over time. This is a prolific underdog over time um, in, in his UFC run. And so I think when you look at other ways to target it, main event, fight doesn't go the distance, um, Sarukian, ITD, and then you hit on it. Sarukian sub ends by sub. Those were two things written down in my document as well. 1100 plus 600. Both seem kind of wide to me because what's Benny's best path here? I mean, he could hurt him on the feet, but we just saw Armin last time out. When he gets hurt, he's going to go self-preservation. He's going to try and take you down. He's going to try and get on top. He's going to try and, you know, survive. So Benny is an elite submission practitioner in his own right. Um, You know, he could take the back and finish the fight in a scramble if he hurts him. So I think that that's one other way to target the fight. And I've gotten burnt on how many main event ends by sub. I'll do it again, damn it, uh, like the meme says. So in any case, there you have it, guys. We've broken them all down. Uh, I think we did a great job. Glad to have fights back in our life this week, 13 of them. Uh, and Rich, we did the damn thing. So let people know where can they find you and all the great work you're doing. Yeah, same as always, man. If you want my bets on the rest of it, um, check me out on Twitter. Got a Patreon going, $12 a month. So if you want bets, man, um, sign up. Got a Discord group as well. Been doing good hitting the live bets. Um, so that's that's something new. I love it. And guys, uh, if you're not familiar, let's go over a couple quick housekeeping notes, which is number one, you can find this show on podcast. Just search Liam Picks Fights Presents. You'll easily find it. It's got my first look. It's got this show as well in full each and every week for you guys. Uh, I will timestamp this show. We'll get some clips out there as well for everybody. So if you haven't already, drop a like on this video to support the channel. Make sure that you get subscribed because we're here talking fights each and every week for you guys. Try and put you in a position to succeed. It's the good guys. That's us versus those bookies each and every damn week. Uh, And so appreciate you guys all for being here. Sharpest chat in the game. Uh, Thank you guys all for your contributions. Thank you to everybody who donated to the show. Thank you to everybody who watched and contributed along the way. And if you guys want more from me, you can find it in the description box below, whether that is uh, my individual work. I do it on Patreon. I do work with Luca Fury as well. But if you're looking for stuff on the NFL, NBA, NHL, all that kind of stuff as well, Lab VIP, they're running a nice Black Friday promo right now. A, A very short group of guys that I work with and I I'm sharp on mixed martial arts. I'm not sharp on all that other stuff. I can only read markets, but know a bunch of guys that are very sharp in the lab VIP doing great work. So wanted to shout out those guys, but that's it. That's all for us guys. So God bless you all. Good luck with all your bets. And until next time, come back and we're having all the same fun again. Take care, everybody.